0: we mm-hmm.
1: How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 52 of x laps where, uh, it's weird to say it, but we're back to business as usual. Um, after, you know, five episodes, you know, on the fringes here, we had the four-issue X-Men Plus Fantastic Four Mini, and then we had the giant-size, uh, silent issue, and... Yeah, now we're right back to the grind here with uh, Marauders number seven. Let's hop right on in. Uh, Marauders number seven had an April twenty twenty cover date. Story is called "With Emma from with, with Emma from Love." No, no, it's not that. It's "From Emma with Love." Oy. it was written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors: Edgar Delgado. Let is V.C.'s Corey Petit, Designs, Tom Muller, Head of X's Hickman, Edits, Robinson White, Cebulski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale February 5th of 2020. Now we start with our roll call, and it's an interesting one. We've got Callisto, who is also on the cover of this issue. I don't know if we've seen her yet in the Dawn of X uh, landscape, but uh, I guess we're going to be seeing a lot of her in this book. Uh, So, Callisto, Jumbo Carnation, Emma Frost, Iceman, Christian Frost, Bishop, Storm, Pyro, Mask, the Morlock, and Sebastian Shaw. From here, you know, two pages of credits. Uh, Why not? Then we get an info page, which is a text message to Kitty from an unknown sender regarding Verende and drugs. Then, finally, comics. We open in recent flashback land here, where Callisto is approaching the White Palace in Hellfire Bay, where she'd, uh, you know, been summoned, her her presence was requested. Now, upon entry, she finds, uh, well, Emma Frost in kind of a state of undress. You see, she's in the middle of a fitting by her stylist, the recently resurrected Jumbo Carnation. Emma tells Callisto that she's early for their meeting, to which the Morlock corrects her, stating that she's actually two hours late. So I guess uh, time flies while you're trying on clothes Though, gotta say, all those hours I've spent Trying not to look like a weirdo While carrying my wife's purse around a clothes shop While she's in the changing room That tells me otherwise That time does not fly Now, here's the deal Emma's got a proposition for Calista. Well, Actually, a proposition about a position Now, of course, we have a white queen That's Emma We have a white bishop and Christian But Emma's in the market for a white knight because there's probably a lot of flame wars on the uh, Hellfire message boards, right? No, no, this is actually the position in Hellfire Inc. Corp., whatever they're calling it. Now, Jumbo, to celebrate or commemorate this occasion, he forks over a long white trench coat for Callisto to try on, as uh, he talks about how much he loved her during her modeling career, which is a really neat callback to the Siege Perilous era of X-Men, if I'm remembering right. Now, Callisto slices the sleeves off the trench coat, that's... That's a heck of a sentence. To make it more her style, which is a look that Jumbo, like, he kind of swoons over it. He thinks that uh, it was just the just the touch it needed. And she trades him a blade for the, uh... I guess we can call it a trench vest. And Jumbo sweeps her into his arms to thank her. From here, we jump to the present. Now, Callisto is on Island M, where she greets the incoming Marauders. Uh, Christian for us is also there, and he and Bobby make out a bit. I... Didn't know they were officially in a relationship, but I suppose I suppose it works in that old soap opera sort of thing Where it's like we only have two gay or black or Asian characters, so they just put them together it, Like that old soap opera trope I guess it works in that sort of way Though I, I don't know if they have an actual relationship or not I suppose we'll find out Now Callisto tells Bishop that she expected them sooner To which he asks if Kitty has checked in yet To uh, let home base know about their tangle with Donald Pearson company Callisto says Kitty hasn't called in nor shown up. Now, this is troubling to Redbish, uh, as he, uh, as she should have be- beaten them there by a day. Callisto then sets eyes on Storm, who isn't dying of a Children of the Vault disease, so that's good. Uh, she greets Aurora by tossing a blade directly at her throat. Storm catches it, and the uh, two old friends-slash-rivals embrace. Pyro thinks this is pretty hardcore, and uh, he's not wrong. He suggests that this sort of aggressive behavior is the reason why the Brotherhood were never able to best the X-Men. And, uh, yeah, probably that and the fact that often, more often than not, the Brotherhood kind of sucked. That probably had something to do with it. From here, we shift over to the Verendi house in Madripoor, where the Hellfire kids are watching this conversation play out. You gotta remember, they got an inside man in the form of Yellowjacket, who is currently, you know, fantastic voyaging all throughout Pyro's bloodstream. Bishop tells Pyro to head back to Krakoa, and he'll double back to Madripoor. Cade Kilgore is pleased to learn that soon Pyro and, of course, Yellowjacket will be arriving at Krakoa. And he's also happy that uh, they got a little bonus here. They now know about Island M, so that's a good thing. Uh, Kilgore then addresses the Russian ambassador, and I think it's the same one that we've already seen a few times throughout Dawn Hox Pox Docs. And I think I mentioned, or probably mentioned every time we see her, that she looks a bit like Dr. Gregor from Orcus. I mean, they definitely have the same hairstylist anyway. Now, the ambassador is impressed with what Varendi has and is about to uncover and suggests that the government, well, any government really, would pay top dollar for such information. She also suggests that the Russians will create a leaner and meaner power-dampering dealie. Rather than taking up an entire suit of clunky armor, it'll now be the size of a sidearm. I gotta ask, why don't they just copy, like, the power-dampening collars that, like, every other villain on the planet seems to have these days? I mean, it's not that novel any- anymore, is it? Uh, Cade bids her adieu with a Verendi hand sign, which, uh, which is kind of awkward. It's like you put your middle finger and your ring finger up while you close the rest of your fingers down. It's like a weird, like, Boy Scout salute, but far more awkward. I mean, try doing that. It's not as easy as it looks. Um, Now, from here, we jump to the Madripoor side of a Krokoan gateway, and this is where the Verendis have staged a welcoming party for Bishop in the form of many, many mercenaries. Now, saying his first rodeo so cleverly, Bishop doesn't just saunter through the gate. Instead, he drops a live grenade on the other side, which goes boom, taking out many of the mercs. He then dives through, guns literally blazing, to take out the rest. He's confronted by Hellfire Tot Manuel and Duki, the white king of the commonest Verandy. Manuel informs Vi- Bishop that he ain't scared one bit, considering Krakoans have that pesky kill-no-man rule. Now, this weirds Bishop out a little bit. After all, how could Enduki know about Krakoan law? Bishop then proceeds to pummel the hellfire out of the kid, saying that there's no Krakoan law restricting him from effing up a man. So, there's that. Though I am surprised that maybe <laughs> the Marauders aren't exempt to that rule, just like every other X-team. Uh, now, in Manuel's pocket, Manuel's knocked out, of course, Bishop finds a letter about a boat docked at Madrapur. And next thing we know, Bishop is wearing some stolen merc armor and readying to board the thing. From here, we shift scenes to Rio Verde, Arizona, where Callisto is meeting with her fellow Morlock, Mask. Gotta tell you something. As a guy who lives in Arizona, I'm used to comics writers and artists using, like, the usual Arizona shorthand when it comes to how they present our fair and barren state, It's usually a lot of cacti and cliffs Which, yeah, we've got a lot of those But it ain't the entire state So I'm going to hand it to uh, Duggan and Caselli For doing their homework here They nailed Rio Verde here Because uh, it's depicted as a golf course And that's basically all Rio Verde is So that's hats off to uh, Duggan and Caselli Uh, Back when I was uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on this program But I know I've talked about it on the channel I was a windshield repairman For a number of years and back when I was in that business, uh, it would never fail that around March or April, which is known in Arizona as Snowbird migration season, I'd have to drive out to Rio Verde, Rio Verde three or four times a week to patch up some glass before the folks split town to avoid, you know, the hellish Arizona summer ahead. And it really—it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's a, like a weird oasis uh, in in how green it is. Like, I think there's only like two ways to get there. You know, you can either approach it from the south if you come up through Fountain Hills, or you can uh, be way up in North Scottsdale, and you can head east uh, along. I think it's Dynamite, Dynamite Boulevard, or Dynamite Road. It's just a barren wasteland of desert and uh, switchbacks through cliffs, and it's 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 a wasteland. But then you get there, and it's this lush green golf course, you know, golf course community. And the town is basically one street. On the west side, you get neighborhoods. And on the east, a giant golf course. So, uh, you know, good on you, Marauders Creative Team. Thank you for actually doing your homework. And uh, for once, not depicting the state I live in as like a wily e. Coyote Roadrunner cartoon. Because that's usually how it looks. I remember, uh, what was it? Um, the Jeff Loeb Nova series. Um, where, the no, where the kid Nova grew up in Carefree Arizona or was living in Carefree Arizona which was drawn to look like a like a real one horse western wasteland town when Carefree Arizona is actually very very uh it's a very wealthy <laughs> it's a very wealthy town. I've done a lot of jobs in there too. I've uh, I believe that's where I actually had to patch a uh, Rolls-Royce. who was up in Cave and C- in, in Carefree. So uh, I I do like that Rio Verde was was depicted as Rio Verde where so often they take the, sh- the easy way out of, uh, of showing Arizona Anyway, enough about that Let's, uh, let's talk about the, se- the scene we got here Kalisto is there to drop off the Morlocks' allowance from Krakoa Now Mask is annoyed that they're in leagues with the top dwellers or whatever Kalisto reminds him that the Morlocks actually chose this location Which, hey, as far as locations go, you could do far worse than Rio Verde she then sinks Mask's putt with her dagger. It was like he, he missed the putt, made the, the ball got right to the cup, and she tossed a dagger, knocked it in. And then she declares the sunk putt as a touchdown. Which is shorthand for, I don't know, sports, right? Come on, you could do better than that. Now Mask asks how Kalisto feels about working with a group that has named themselves after the Marauders, which, you know, is a callback to the uh, the Mutant Massacre. Uh, Kalisto shrugs it off, doesn't put too much thought into it. From here, we jump to an info page from the X Desk, and uh, we learn that they're studying folks who are taking the Krakowin drugs, which is probably a really good idea. Also, we get a snippet from a neighbor review website from Sunny Rio Verde, Arizona, and the the normal folk aren't really getting used to all the new weirdness that abounds, and uh, rightfully so. It's a it's an aged community in uh, in Rio Verde. A lot of a lot of uh, elders. So I would assume that uh, seeing a bunch of Morlocks walking down the street probably uh, probably wouldn't probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't pass the test. Um, we now shift to the Quiet Council, and uh, we got a few people sitting in the wrong seats here. Um, actually, the only correct you know season of the Council, because the the, the the Council is broken up into four seasons. Uh, the only right one is Emma and Shaw being together. Uh, every other trio is all messed up. Anywho, they've put something to a vote. I guess it doesn't really matter what at this point, but they arrive at a deadlock. Uh, Kitty's not there, of course, and Mister Sinister has abstained from taking a position. So it's 5-4, five, five, 5 against whatever they're discussing. Uh, maybe they're picking a new bagel provider. I know that uh, that gets pretty heated when you're in a when you're in a, like a management group. That uh, that could be a scary scene. Shaw turns to Emma and comments that it's regrettable that Kitty couldn't make it. Emma, you know, she pretends she knows what's going on. She states that, uh, eh, Kitty just got held up somewhere. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Shaw smiles, and of course he knows far more than he's letting on. And we close out the issue with a fishing boat on Madrapur Bay. And the fishing folks pull their net out of the drink, only to find Lockheed, who may or may not be alive. But that is Marauders number seven. Next episode, we'll be talking about Excalibur number seven. But let's talk about what we just read. This was a good issue. Um, it's kind of weird going back to like just business as usual here because <laughs> despite the fact that I really dug this, I enjoyed my time with this issue, I just don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about it. You know, um, we've added a White Knight in Callisto, and, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Um, we're moving forward with the Ominous Verundee plot, which is also cool. Uh, we had Stefano caselli art which, outside of messing up the Quiet Council's seating arrangement, was cool as well. But this was a transitional issue, you know, and as mentioned, it was a darn good one. It unfortunately, however, doesn't lend itself to uh, much in the way of analysis. Um... It really just is what it is. Uh, we don't get any clarity on the fate of Call Me Kate, but uh, I don't think we needed that just yet. You know, um... I like the way that they're they're playing it close to the vest here. You know, Emma doesn't know what's going on, but she's lying to make it appear as though she does. And sure, he's playing cool and curious, despite knowing exactly what went down. It's a, it's a really good scene. And, uh, really good use of these characters as well. Um... It's weird. I feel <laughs> I feel like I'm cheating here uh, or shortchanging you fine listeners here, but uh I don't know. There's not a whole lot more to say. I think the last thing any of us need is just me talking and vamping for the sake of it. So, we'll just put a pin in it for now. It was a good issue. A transitional issue. It's, you know, we're 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 shifting into the next phase of the story here. We're putting things in place. Just not a whole heck of a lot to talk about. Um, if anybody out there has anything to say about this issue, please let me know, um, and, uh, we can discuss it, but off the top of my head, it's, a uh, kind of just an issue, um, now speaking of reaching out, we have no mailbag today, today I, I woke up to an empty mailbag, so that's a, it's a sad thing, but not totally unexpected, you can't have mail every single day, I probably shouldn't have, uh, included so much mail in the previous, uh, two episodes, but, uh, you know when I, when I get mail, when I get uh, a tweet or a contact, I uh, I'm very excited to share it. So I uh, I don't exercise patience very well, but uh, hopefully we'll get some mail in the next couple episodes to uh, to share. Uh, but instead, in lieu of the mailbag, I do have a little bit of housekeeping to discuss. Today, I spent several hours that I probably should have been studying um, putting together the order for the next. Fifty-odd episodes of this show Which uh, might be a bit... I don't know, might be putting the cart before the horse A little bit uh, But if nothing else, I I think big, right? Um, While I put together the list of the 50 next episodes I also created the cover art for the next 20 or so episodes I think... I think I got us up to episode 73, so uh, we got the next 21 episodes were all set with uh, with cover art or album art or whatever you call that, whatever you call the weird, you know, some, the thing with the circle and the X that I, that I put a picture behind, um, and I figure that I could share with you all what to expect over the course of the next few months, and I can actually give you, uh, you know, real episode numbers to look forward to, and that is, of course, assuming anybody is looking forward to anything I do. Uh, I'll just pretend. I'll just pretend so I don't uh, so I don't cry. Um now, Wolverine is coming very very soon. We're going to launch Wolverine volume 7. I can't believe it's volume 7. That's going to be episode 58. So this is episode 52, so not too long from now. That is a big fat book. So uh I'm like looking forward to it and dreading it. So, but we'll, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> we will. Uh, Cable will get his own series, and that will follow in episode 64, so also not terribly long from now. Uh, We jump ahead to episode 70, and that's where Hellions will begin. Then episode 85 will kick off X-Factor. Leading into X-Factor, I've decided to put the Empire miniseries uh, in episodes 81 through 84, coming right after, I believe... The coverage of X-Men number 9, I think that's the order that they're in But uh, we'll get that out of the way, the same way we did Fantastic Four uh, Just one clump Uh, We do have four more of the Giant Size issues to discuss Now Giant Size Nightcrawler will be episode 69 Giant Size Magneto, episode 77 Giant Size Phantom X will be episode 88 And then we'll wrap the whole thing up with Giant Size Storm in episode 105 now, uh, X of Tens The coverage for X of Tens will begin with episode 109 And that'll be X of Swords Creation Or sort of... what is it again? I keep, I've keep i been calling it X of Tens so long I don't know what the real name is anymore I think it's X of Swords so uh, Or Ten of Swords so X of Tens is what we're calling it um, X of Tens Creation will be episode 109 Uh, Episode 108 will look at the free comic book day issue that I believe leads into Acts of Tens. I flipped through it, and I know there's a lot of tarot card imagery in there, so I'm just assuming that it has something to do with it. Uh, Episode 107 is going to be a weird one. Uh, It's a book that I wasn't intending to include on this journey, and that book is Juggernaut number 1. And it's weird, because just... Just yesterday as I'm recording this uh, Evan Bevins reached out to ask if I'd be covering it And I didn't even have to think about it I was like, nah, <laughs> no, not covering Juggernaut number one Because I thought it had nothing to do with Dawn of X But they included it on the checklist in the back of the Dawn of X books Which is, you know, that's like Kristenite, You know, I, I have to do it now The completionist in me don't won't allow us to skip it uh, I'm not sure if it'll be, like, in the Dawn of X milieu for its entire six-issue run. But, you know, we'll keep an eye out. You know, we'll we'll keep a, we'll keep an eye out, see if it shows up in any more of the checklists in the back of the books. If it's just the first issue, that's cool. We'll cover it. If it's the whole six-issue miniseries, eh, we'll cover that. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, the problem with that is that... Uh, I assumed it had nothing to do with Dawn of X So I didn't order it So now I'm going to actually have to go out and buy it And you know I had this conversation on One of the social medias over the Past few days that uh, It never fails, the book that I, I, I Choose to skip uh, Like, it'll always be The, you know, retroactively hot book You know, so now I'm assuming that like like a Juggernaut number one will have a single panel cameo of like a some character that Bleeding Cool will tell us to like keep an eye out for. So then all the uh all the ridiculous speculator apps will have it marked at like fifteen dollars or something and I'll get stuck having to pay some crazy price for it or buying a a penciled covered third print or something. Who knows? Who knows? But uh not not a book I was expecting to cover here. Um but a book I discovered that we would be when I was uh, going through the uh, the old checklists uh, earlier today when I should have been when I should have been studying. Um, now that's being that Juggernaut story is written by Fabian Nicieza and I, I like Fabian Nisiesa a lot. Um, a lot of my ex fandom is uh, is through Nicieza's work, uh, Nisiesa and Lobdell. So I think that'll be pretty cool. I don't have a whole heck of a lot of interest in Juggernaut, um, but hey. You know that's uh that's what this show's all about broadening the horizons and uh, and experiencing things that are that are new and different. So we'll do that and uh, yeah that's uh I guess that's that's all we got today. It's a little bit of housekeeping. If uh, if anyone out there has any questions about a particular issue, like say you really want to know when we're going to discuss Hellion's number three, yeah, reach out. You know, hit me up and I'll let you know uh, when that'll be and uh, you know what approximate. Uh, <laughs> group of days you could uh, you could block out for that one so again uh, big assumptions on my part but uh you got you gotta you gotta think big right but that's where we'll leave it for today if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me you could do so very very easily I'm very easy to find on the Twitter machine at ace comics and via email at weird history at gmail.com. You can Find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearth. dot com and we have xlapsed. dot dot There's the Facebook group over at Nineties X Men on Facebook, where I posted today. I posted a picture from the uh, the Marvel Illustrated swimsuit parody issue uh, from 1991 that had uh, Boom Boom, you know, old Tabitha, what's her face, in a uh, very skimpy bikini. I believe she was probably about sixteen or seventeen years old at this point, and behind her, Cable is leering very, very creepily. It's a uh, it's quite an image <laughs> that you can see over on Nineties X Men fa- on Facebook. Uh, Richter is also very excited to see this, which uh, I guess uh, I guess we didn't uh, we didn't decide anything about Richter just yet. So there's that. If you'd like to see it, um, you can find the audio archives at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. A lot of stuff going on there a lot of archives there and uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the works so keep an eye there if you have any interest in anything I do and uh, if you've listened for this entire episode chances are you might so uh, I thank you for that uh, but in, in in all honesty I do thank everyone for hanging out here today as we get back to X lapsed as usual with uh, you know the mainline books here uh, it means a lot that you're uh, you're still with me And I hope that uh, I've earned your listenership moving forward. So uh, I guess that's about all I got to say. Just uh, thank you all so, so much. And uh, I will talk to you again, as always, real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 53 of X-Lapsed, and, uh, I'm recording this in the dark. It's, uh, it's Halloween night, and I don't want any of my neighbors to know that we're home. <laughs> because, uh, hey, there's a, I hear there's a virus out there, and I, I don't really want uh, a bunch of people around. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that, uh, this, this recording session is not interrupted by a whole lot of doorbell rings, but, uh, yeah, hopefully the light's out outside a little, uh, well, you know, protect me. Uh, but uh, enough about that. Today, we've got a book to talk about. It is Excalibur Volume Four, Number Seven. This had an April 2020 cover date. Story is called Verse Seven: The Unspeakable and the Uneatable. Written by Teeny Howard, with pencils by Wilton Santos, inks by Oren Junior, colors Eric Arshinaga, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White, Sobalski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale February 13th of 2020. And we open up straight away with a roll call, and uh, we got ourselves a, a pretty decent-sized cast today. It's uh, Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Pete Wisdom, A, Jamie Braddock, and Exodus. And of course, this is followed by our customary double-page spread of creds. Finally, open the comics content here with Richter manipulating some earth to open like a chasm or a pit. Right? Betsy then tosses her beautiful brother Brian's blade into the abyss. Remember, from last issue, he asked her to do so because uh, he was he was being mucked with in the head by Morgan Le Fay, and uh, when he was offered the ch- the sword of the amulet, he chose the sword. He ain't a fan of that, so he wants her to uh, rid him of the sword. Now Rogue is there, and she wonders if it's truly wise to toss and bury the sword, but, uh, doesn't really put up too much of a fight. From here, Betsy decides to visit... Uh, Otherworld? Alright, thankfully we're not going to be here that long. And so Betsy steps through the now-functioning Krakoan gateway to... Is it Avalon or Camelot? Whatever this place is called. It's Otherworld. Uh, she approaches her uh, brother, the weirdo king, Jamie Braddock, on his otherworldly throne. And they have a pretty contentious chat, which is uh, ain't anything new to us. Uh, Betsy winds up hurling a psychic blade at Jamie's head, which he narrowly dodges before accusing his sister of attempted regicide. Regicide's kind of a funny word. It's a word that's uh, it means a lot more to me these days, and it has nothing to do with attempted murder of royalty. Uh, my old partner Reggie. Uh, Reggie is short for uh, Regicide. His, uh, you know, his his namda, not not a nom de plume. I guess it is a nom de plume because he did do writing under Reggie as well. But uh, he heard the the word Regicide as a child and uh, thought it was very funny. So uh, he started signing his name as Regicide, which was shortened to Reggie. So uh, anytime I see Regicide or hear the word Regicide, I, I can't help but to. Uh, To get a little bit of a smile inside Um, Now, after expressing that she is here to see a Jamie literally pulls the rug out from under her He vanishes the floor beneath her And she falls down to the lab below Now she arrives and finds a hanging out with Fellow quiet council member Exodus Now they talk about how Otherworld is now Sort of kind of a part of Krakoa Because, you know, mutants can go there So... Uh, and all mutants right now can freely come and go via the portal Because, you know, uh, Betsy's wondering how Exodus got here And Apocalypse is like, or AE Is like, hey, the door's open, anybody can come in Now there's a bunch of glimmering sheets of uh, paper floating around the scene It's almost like a mutant version of the Stephen J. Cannell Productions logo That used to sort of kind of creep me out as a kid Now these pages we come to find are A's grimoire which he'd like to share with Betsy and the rest of mutant kind. He's uh, through Keeping Secrets, apparently, though uh, part of me doubts he's going to share what he has in mind for Morgan Le Fay, who he was, uh, he was kind of uh, dissecting her at the end of last issue. Now, he has a plan to create a multiversal beacon of sorts, a component that uh, I suppose might facilitate travel between dimensions... I don't know, but I suppose it stands to reason that he uh, would want to broaden the horizons of his kingdom and coven, or whatever it is. Here's the thing, though. He needs a special ingredient to make this component, and that ingredient is uh, some warwolf heads. Yeah, you remember the warwolves wolves from uh, the other Excalibur, the old Excalibur? Those shiny things. Uh, now, Betsy is a bit incredulous, but she listens anyway. And we find out that there are actually five wolves in captivity at the London Zoo, which is a callback to a couple of old Excalibur stories, which, of course, I really appreciate. Now, outside the palace, Betsy meets up with Jubilee and Dragon Shogo, because Shogo is always a dragon in Otherworld, uh, the latter of whom is busily eating dirt clods, and uh, gotta wonder what dirt clods might taste like in Otherworld. Probably boredom. Anywho. Jubilee would prefer that her son eat actual food And she brandishes something that appears to be like a raw human leg I think it's just a cut of meat, but it looks like a leg Uh, Betsy tempts the beast to eat it by playing a bit of fetch So she chucks it, the dragon goes, yada 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 Now Jubilee complains that Shogo likes it so much better in Otherworld than he does in Krakoa Uh, They wonder if that might be because he's, you know, human Betsy suggests that they drop the tot with Megan so they can have a night out in London Could you even imagine, like back in 1992 or whatever, that we'd see Psylocke and Jubilee hanging out? It almost doesn't compute to me. From here, we get an info page. And it's a page straight out of the Grimoire. And it discusses the warwolves. Which, you know, we're gonna see the warwolves in a bit. This is not the worst idea. Especially considering that this might be the first time some newer readers, if those do exist, are even hearing about these creatures, right? So I'm cool with this one, and that's news that I'm, I'm sure Teeny Howard is wildly relieved to hear, right? Some goofball with a podcast thinks an idea was okay. So, we resume, and we're at the London Zoo. Betsy and Jubilee are joined by Pete Wisdom, who is apparently anywhere you need him to be, so long as you're in the UK, Great Britain, and or England. Uh, here's the thing, though. The war Wolves are gone. The zookeeper's there, and she ain't too keen on discussing the hows and whys of this, so uh, Jubilee decides to hack into the zoo's records with her iPhone. Because I suppose Jubilee is a hacker now? Well, I mean, she does kind of have that look, doesn't she? You know, you remember all those mid-90s movies about hackers? That, well, maybe it was just the one, but I feel like the girls in those movies all had the Jubilee-ish look to them. Anyway, Jubilee is able to get through and discerns that the werewolves didn't actually escape. Instead, they were bought and paid for. Pete suggests that now that they know what they know, they may as well stop for some drinks. And Jubilee is overjoyed at the idea of stopping for a sip. And I'm not sure what the legal drinking age is across the pond. And while I'm at it, do, do Brits like it when ignorant Americans use phrases like across the pond? I mean, it it kind of annoys me to say it, so I wonder how it lands over there. Anyway, I'm not sure what the legal age is. A quick and dirty Google search says 18 is legal, and 16 is legal if you're accompanied by an adult. Maybe? I don't know. So when I first read this here before I had the, uh... had my, you know, search device with me here, I, I just... I was thinking, like, oh, man, did they really age Jubilee to being over 21? Which, you know, they still might have, but, uh... This is just me getting caught in the scenery again Jubilee will always be, you know, very young (laughs) in my eyes here But uh, what are you going to do? So, our trio heads to a nearby karaoke bar to throw back a pint or two And it just so happens that we we learn here that there's a method to uh, Pete Wisdom's suggestion You see, on stage is the person that they're after it's uh, one Cullen Bloodstone, who, if I'm not mistaken, I only know from uh, one of the most surprising Marvel Now-era books, uh, Avengers Arena. A book that uh, really had no reason to be as good as it was, but it was it was actually very, very good. Um, for those unaware, Avengers Arena was sort of, kind of, a riff on Battle Royale. Uh, I, though I suppose there's probably not much sort of, kind of, about it. <laughs> it was basically Battle Royale. Down to the logo Um, The story was that there were like 15 or 20 team heroes They were all kidnapped by Arcade And uh, brought to Murder World where they had to fight to the death So it was going to be, you know, 15 or 20 in The last person standing was the one that was going to live I don't think any of these characters actually stayed dead Because, I mean, it is what it is, but what are you going to do? So anyway, Cullen is here And he sits down with our heroes for a chat He's surprised to have it confirmed that Betsy is now Captain Britain. And he also reveals that he bought the war Wolves for an upcoming exotic hunt. Pete reveals that, uh, hey, we just need the heads and we're willing to pay for them. Cullen says, no, 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 that'd be unsportsmanlike. You can't claim a quarry that you didn't hunt yourself. That said, however, he'd be totally fine with them joining the hunt. So that's probably what they're going to do. From here we get a full page flyer for this upcoming warwolf hunt, which you know we talked about the menu for uh the the Krokoa Summit at the uh wasn't the u n but the uh wherever that was in that issue of x men and uh, I believe Jason wrote in and said that that'd be a fun piece of ephemera to own here, and I agree, and I think this uh this warwolf hunt poster might be another fun piece of ephemera to uh, own. Uh, We learn here that there are rules to this. Uh, No Krakoan hoodoo is allowed. And that the attire is, quote, cape casual. So, get a little bit of cuteness there, but what are you going to do? And so, we resume our story at the Bloodstone Summer Lodge in County Durham, England. The hunt is about to begin, and Betsy's brought Excalibur to take part in the game. We see Cullen's horse, and it's a... Well, it's pretty hellish. It's got flaming eyes, and it's snorting and grunting smoke. Um, It's also got like a... Oh, not it, but Cullen. He's also got like a bunch of demonic cats lingering about. I don't know what good they are, but I suppose... I suppose any old port in a storm, right? Might as well... If you can have demonic cats, you might as well have them. Anyway, the pistol sounds, and the hunt begins. We follow our team, and uh, Gambit, he wonders aloud why the Quiet Council is after, you know, Warwolf heads. What, what do they have to do with anything? To which Richter corrects him, stating that only one member of the Quiet Council actually wants them. This gets under uh, Gambit's skin pretty bad here. He, uh, he feels like he's been conned into unknowingly helping out Apocalypse again. Uh, Betsy asks him to think about it as him doing her a favor instead. To which he replies that, hey... It wasn't all that long ago that Betsy said she'd never ask for him for another favor again, and uh you know he's not wrong uh he did uh he did make concessions for betsy, where she said if he were to agree with her, she'd never ask him for another favor again uh that said, however, if that is the case, maybe this team maybe this team ain't the right fit for all Remy right <laughs> if he's never going to uh do what the leader asked him to do, maybe he should uh I don't know, maybe there's an opening on f- on the Fallen Angels team he can join. Now, Gambit notices a pretty young thing sitting by a creek or something, and uh, he runs over to check her out and see if she's okay. So he heads over and he finds out that this woman is actually a werewolf in humans' clothing. Or, you know, skin. Betsy swoops in and decapitates the silvery beast. She then, for some reason, drops the head into the creek. So, uh... I don't know why she did that. It, it is worth noting here that in the very next panel, she's got it attached to her belt, so maybe she just wanted to give it a good scrubbing first. I suppose I, I can't falter for that. I don't know that I'd want a beast skull, a dirty beast skull, in my pocket. So the team continues to walk. Richter asks if anyone has read A's Grimoire yet. Betsy claims that she brought it, but no, she hasn't yet read it. Richter assumes that she's mainly interested in checking it out To make sure they're not unwittingly helping up, Not Apocalypse, actually, A, do evil things Richter, we might recall Somehow regained control of his powers after a chat with A So, uh, I guess he's kinda willing to give the big guy the benefit of the doubt Now Rogue flies over to let the team know she spotted some wolves Running into a nearby cave Richter does his thing, makes the earth shake to spook the beasties out We do see our hunt host, Cullen, as he looks up to the sky to see Rogue flying toward the cave, which is apparently a big no-no, because using mutant powers is considered unsportsmanlike. I mean, dude might be a douche, but he's not wrong. Rogue is taken by surprise by a werewolf, as Cullen watches on. He does not interfere. He tells her that it's uh, time for the mutants to experience a big loss. He feels like uh, maybe all the wins they've been racking up of late has made them forget just how human they can actually be. Rogue, you know, she's fine. She wrestles the Warwolf for a bit, then removes her glove and then drains the life out of the monster. Cullen's all bah humbug and he trots away on his hell beast horse, claiming that maybe he needs to be hunting a different kind of quarry. Now Rogue returns to her team and she's uh, now wearing a uh, cape made out of warwolf. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a pelt, a skin. It's shiny, and she's wearing it around her neck. Uh, she also has its skull, so now we've got two. They've got no time to celebrate, however, as the team is suddenly overcome by... tentacles. And we can see that those tentacles are coming from Cullen Bloodstone's hellish horse. You see, the man of the house has decided it's time to start hunting mutants, which I suppose from the cover of the very next issue should have been obvious for me to me from the get-go. But, uh, I guess I just wasn't thinking about it that way. I didn't... I'm so used to covers not meaning anything that uh, I must have just thought it was a uh, a random pinup. But, uh, no. <laughs> it's actually a hunt. But uh, that is everything for Excalibur number seven. Next episode, we'll be, be, we'll be looking at X-Force number seven. But how about we talk about what we just read? This was a, uh... This was a weird issue. Um one that I might assume a lot of the uh, Dawn of X readership might dismiss as being filler. They uh, they wouldn't be entirely wrong with that, in that uh, point of view, but to me, that's kind of why I enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, despite the fact that I've been maybe a little bit hard on the Dawn of X line for under-delivering, or just not delivering at all on the promises made during Hawksbox, I feel like we Kind of need stories like this To actually get the opportunity To see our heroes in action In a more everyday sort of way Does that make any sense? I feel like so many of these Issues and stories that we've read Have had that like Half pregnant feel to them Like they want to push the Dawn of X Story forward but They're not allowed to because We're not ready for the progression just yet I mean does that make sense? I'm not sure I'm explaining it as well as I, as I might be. Uh, this issue, it kind of sidesteps that problem, in that it's it's really just its own thing. I mean, sure, there are Dawn of X trappings, you know, portals, a yada yada yada, all that kind of stuff. But it's so on the fringes that I feel like it can kind of stand on its own. Uh, it was also surprisingly light on other world pages, which might be filling me with like a relief-fueled euphoria (laughs) that's subconsciously ticking my enjoyment meter up a bit? That is totally possible. That said, was this a great issue? Not really, though I probably enjoyed it more than any I've read so far from this volume. Um, It was, you know, sort of silly in that 90s Excalibur sort of way, which to me is a very good thing. Um, The art here was probably not... Quite up to what we've come to expect from Marcus Toe But fine enough uh, It did take me a page or two to get used to it But once I did, I liked it just fine um, Though, of course, having a fill-in artist Doesn't doesn't really uh, subvert the filler feel This issue might have given some folks But, you know, what are you going to do? It might very well have been Just something to get us to another To, you know, from point A to point B I'm guessing Marcus Toe is probably Otherwise engaged with, uh more uh, pivotal chapters of, uh, of this title But I mean, it was a silly issue um, It had a good uh, pacing, it had some good beats Cullen Bloodstone is a villain I mean, you, you could do better, you could do worse It's. I'm just happy it wasn't full of magic And, uh, and Otherworld and swords It just felt like a, uh, a random issue And I think in the day and age we're in right now just everyday normal issues don't get a whole lot of play. They don't get... I don't know, they just don't... We don't. I don't feel like we get them quite as often as we used to, which is a good thing in a way, but it's also... I don't know, makes it feel like these books are a little too far up their own asses sometimes, where everything has to be some huge epic thing. Because if everything's epic, then... I mean, nothing's really epic, right? If... I mean, things get gimmicky, things get overblown, and uh I don't know this felt like it felt like we had a little bit of breathing room here, you know we're We're out of other world for now. Um, we're not dealing with a whole lot of Cracolin trappings. Um it's just an adventure or not even an adventure. It's just a story. We get to see the characters you know, relate to each other, we get to see the characters chat. Um, we get a little bit of angst Which, I mean, that is X-Men <laughs> That's what we what we get from X-Men books And uh, we get a little bit of a threat You know, we get We get MacGuffins in these uh, Werewolf skulls, so we have a reason to be Where we are, and yeah Not a bad issue, not a bad issue at all um, I, I do hope we get more issues Kind of like this in the future um, You know, that is to say Not in Otherworld um, At least until we we're thrust into X of 10s, which I'm guessing will probably have some otherworldly stuff involved in it, but Overall, decent issue Some might think it was filler I don't disagree with that, but Even with that said, I enjoyed it So, uh, here's to ya This was a good one, um and I think that's uh, all I got to say about Excalibur number seven. But before I cut us all loose here, let's uh, dip into the mailbag here—the return of the mailbag—and also the return of Damien who uh, wrote in a, a wonderful piece here uh, discussing episode fifty and uh, X-Men and Fantastic Four number four in particular. He says, "I have so much. I, I have so much to cover this episode. I hope you aren't too bored. No, no, I won't be too bored." Uh, First thing I want to say is I wish I'd seen your tweet about testimonials. X-Lapsed is a real source of joy for me, and your openness to feedback and my bad jokes is part of the experience with me. I think I've said before that the best comics commentary is always autobiography. If you don't learn something about the reviewer, how can you judge how you'll respond to the comics? And uh, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, Knowing this show, or really anything I do, provides even a little measure of happiness means... Means a whole lot to me, and uh, I do consider you part of this show. I mean, you know, the, anybody who engages and writes in th- th- this is as much your show as it is mine. This is—I I was on one of the—I think it was Twitter this morning—and our friend Andrew in Belfast said that this is like a like a reading club. This is like a book club, and it's a uh, and it's a lot of fun to to hear everybody's progression through these books and. For us to exchange our, our ideas and thoughts about them, it's it's really it, it makes this so much more worth it than it would otherwise. You know, it's it does mean a lot to me, um, and I think that like the more personal internet content, you know, things like blogs, podcasts, videos, anything but the dancing videos, really, because can we just stop with those? Those are we don't need those anymore. I think that those go a long way to make us all feel a little less alone. Um, I mean, this year is kind of the perfect example of how alone many of us might be feeling or might just actually be. Um, uh, creating content, and I've said it before, and I'll, I'm sure I'll say it many, many more times, it's, it's kind of lonely to, to put together content. Um, you know, if I break it down to, you know, exactly what it is, uh, it's really it's me sitting at my kitchen island taking notes for a few hours. And then later on that same day, me sitting in my room talking into a microphone for, you know, an hour or two. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you you know, in the midst of this, you wonder why you even do it. You know, is there a goal? Is there a reason? Is there an end game? Is there something that you're working toward? And then you wonder if maybe you do it simply because it's harder not to. What I'm trying to say here is it's a very solitary thing, so... To know that there are folks out there listening is is amazing to me, and uh, that people are a part of this with me it It means a lot really does um It's one of those things that it's you know it's legitimately hard for me to put into words um and I know that might sound cliche and and cheesy, but that's that's really how I feel and uh, you know don't feel bad about missing the tweet uh Somehow, I've got like twenty five hundred followers on Twitter, and yet very, very few people actually seem to care or see <laughs> what I post. It makes me wonder if I'm doing something wrong, or if maybe like ninety five percent of the people who follow me have me muted. I mean, if that's the case, why bother following me at all? Right? That's baffled me for a little while now. I don't, I don't understand if we're just following each other to be uh, polite. Uh, that that's something I kind of get wrapped around the axle about until, eventually, my rational mind kicks in and reminds me that uh, a lot of consumers of content, myself included, do so very passively. You know, um, I I consume content, but I very very seldom write in or even you know participate. I'm very passive about it, and I have to assume that uh, that a lot of folks are. You know, and that, that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just one of those things that, when I'm in the wrong headspace, can can kind of can kind of run me into the ground a little bit. Uh, now Damien continues. I was very sad that the milestone episode fifty was the first in ages when I hadn't left you any feedback. This week I returned to work after seven months off, and I ended up working mainly twelve plus hour shifts. So I've had less time and energy to listen and respond to podcasts. But I will listen to everything eventually. Hell, every time you mention Moratory Mondays, I think that I must dig out my issues to reread and start listening to that show. There really aren't enough hours in the day. And yeah, you no worries. I mean, life life happens, right? Uh, I know everybody gets busy. Uh, you know, people get busy, especially... I mean, these times are weird. I, I I hate falling back on blaming the times, but they are weird, and everything's kind of up in the air. It's very, um... Very polemic, if that's the right word to use here. It's like we get all this downtime and we're told just, you know, stay. Sit and stay. And then like the worm turns immediately and it's like, okay, pedal to the metal, get back to it, get back to it. Just just yesterday you were told to stay home, but now, boom, we're we're rushing right in. Um It also doesn't help matters that I'm putting out so much content. <laughs> I I almost feel greedy doing it. I feel like I'm forcing myself onto people's devices, you know? (laughs) I think that's probably just the guilty Catholic in me. But, uh, you know, I talk about, like, uh, like when Marvel will introduce 15 new titles that they launch in a month, and I I think, like, man, they're just trying to push DC off the shelves, you know? They're just trying to monopolize the racks. And here I am, putting out a new show every day for a few months, and it's like, am I doing that too? I hope not. But, uh, hey, I... You can't take the guilt out of the Catholic. Uh, Damien continues, You really need to set up the Patreon because I don't think I'm going to have time to get around to listening to some of your stuff until I'm 80 and living in an old people's home. That means you'll have to keep paying the hosting fees until about 2054. Sorry. (laughs) And uh, I'm I'm thinking I'll get moving on that pretty soon. I still feel kind of weird about it. I, you know, I... Guess I probably shouldn't say this But I don't think anything i do is anything worth paying for Um, But any funds that I could put forward Hosting and domains would be helpful Uh, I'd love for this endeavor to be like a break-even sort of thing But I'm cool even if it never gets to that point I know the wife would appreciate it Because she thinks uh, She's very supportive of this But uh, I think she questions why I put so much effort into something that That isn't bringing any money in You know, I think that's one of those questions that uh, we don't really talk about, but it's always kind of lingering. It's always in the air, <laughs> and uh, and if I'm able to uh, if I'm able to make anything out of this, that you know, that's more than enough. Uh, Damien continues. I was very it was very moving to hear you talk about Reggie and how losing him affected your ability to podcast. I first discovered your feed through a Podbean recommendation and first listened to Comics Talk. This means it was too late to ever send a comment to let him know how much I enjoyed the show But I can tell you, thank you And that's awesome that that show was recommended um, And it's also awesome that your introduction to this channel was with Comics Talk Those episodes hold a very special place in my heart um, I have so much regret that we weren't able to make more of those Because uh, I feel like those were some of like the very purest episodes of that we put on this channel, um, they were literally just conversations Reggie and I had to, we've had for years. Uh, the only difference is we had some bullet point notes so we could make sure we cited dates and issue numbers accurately right um, they uh, they were literally conversations we had all the time. And uh, those episodes, um, when I revisited them this spring and summer to upload to the main feed, it was, uh, it was difficult, but um, it was also healing, you know? Um, very, very helpful in the healing process, because as I was doing it, I realized how lucky I was. You know, blessed, really, uh, to have these discussions that I had with my friend, right? Fully intact, and I could revisit them anytime I wanted, you know. Um, these, these, like I said, these were these were conversations, these were chats that we had till we were blue in the face, you know. We talked every week about these subjects, and um, they were our uh, sort of like recording warm-up rituals, you know. we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get on Skype and then immediately bada bing, bada boom, record, go. We would talk, we would warm up, we would get, you know, anything that was on our mind, you know, out. And, uh, you know, we'd touch base, we'd talk about the families, we'd get... We would just get stuff out, you know. Um, And, and, you know, then we would go into the shows. Uh, So it's like I'm I'm going through these episodes to re-upload them. Or to actually just really upload them to the main feed... And I'm left thinking, like, how many people can say that they've got whole conversations with a friend they'd lost, right? I mean, I still have a few voicemails from them saved on my phone, which are special, of course, but how cool is it that I have these extended discussions as well? Uh, I'm very lucky in that regard, and I'm really happy that you discovered our little corner of the Internet with some of our realist work. Um, I loved everything we did together uh the treadmill, uh Weird Comics History, The Gatherums, all sorts of stuff that we did together. I loved it. But with Comics Talk, those were never meant for a wider audience. Those were meant for the handful of patrons we had. And uh and we, we, we felt a little it was it was more conversational, it was more loose. Um the notes were very, very basic and uh the bullet points were were uh, not, not wildly detailed you know. Uh, when we did a treadmill Those were pretty much fully scripted out uh, There was some ad-libbing, of course Because that's just going to happen But uh, for the most part A Cosmic Treadmill episode would be 40 or 50 pages of, of script That we would work through And we would go back and forth But comics talk was different And comics talk was, uh, was special Now Damien continues, let's get into Fantastic Four X-Men number four. I also felt like the last issue fell apart a little. The problem with three issues of escalation is that there's too much to resolve in one issue. It was confusing where everyone was. I'm sure they established that the town was a few miles from the lab, but the fight caused by Wolverine stabbing the sentinel mutant guy was outside the lab window. Ultimately, the ending is, it ends because it ends. I suppose that's the advantage of having a reality warper as your focal character. And I do believe that Doom Tower was like, in that populated belt on the Doom Island map That we saw on that info page in probably issue 2, maybe 3 So it stands to reason that they were close And uh, yeah, you're 100% right here The build here was so hot and heavy during the first three issues To organically resolve itself in a single concluding chapter Was going to be a challenge Um, And yeah, you know, Franklin who-doed it? (laughs) <laughs> you know all good again in a single page. Uh, it was just yeah, a little bit of a letdown. Damien continues. It made sense for the two teams to become friends again by seeing some degree of what they've done in Doom's uh, what had done in Doom's behavior. Sue's overprotectedness was partially understandable. I also wonder if the average person in the Marvel universe is aware that you if you go to Krakoa you're free to come and go via the portals. Franklin spending time on Krakoa, but effectively still living with his family, seems an obvious solution, but maybe it seems unlikely to the general public, and that is a really good question. We don't know. We don't really know what folks know about the gateways. Like, do they realize the ins and outs of it? We can go back to the rally that we saw in uh, Marauders Number One, where uh, what's her face, Fang? What was it? I don't remember her name. She's part of uh, Ominous Verandy now. Uh, She said her husband vanished after touching a gateway. And, of course, that was a big fat lie, but the people who had gathered didn't seem to understand that you can easily come and go if you're a mutant. So, yeah, it definitely stands to reason that the general public might not know. So, that's a very interesting point. Uh, Damien continues. It also allows Marvel to have their cake and eat it. He's on Krakowa, but he's still in the Fantastic Four. It's a shame that this series wasn't ready earlier, as Franklin would be a logical character to be shown reacting to Kitty's death. But Marauders Number 8, where they find out she's died, was before 4X Number 4, so they couldn't pre-reveal Franklin on Krakoa. Now, that makes me wonder, will Franklin on Krakoa be a thing? Is that... I... I, I didn't think he would. I figured that uh, that this was just going to be a thing that happened. <laughs> but uh, if uh, Franklin will be on Krakoa, that's great news. Um... Maybe Brevoort and White have an arrangement? I don't know. I just saw Franklin as too top-tier a character in the Fantastic Four book that they wouldn't want him out outside the office. But hopefully, hopefully we will we will see uh, some Franklin on Krakoa. Uh, Damien continues with, uh, The epilogue with Xavier rewriting Reed's mind was a great moment, partly because it subverted the idea that the X-Men are the villains. Reed is the villain. I felt like they might even be trying to imply that his device was burning out Franklin's powers. He did get better when he was on Krakoa. I imagine they left it deliberately vague so we can all create our own headcanon. And I think uh, that was ultimately the conclusion I came to, though it was probably an episode or two later when I when I said it. Uh, now, the Codex as being the, you know, the thing to mess with Franklin's abilities would be a very interesting resolution. And another reason why I'd like to see more of him on Krakoa. I mean, we know that on Krakoa, his powers were were waning less, but the Codex hadn't yet been nullified. I'd be interested to see how his powers react now that Magneto crushed the thing and Xavier made it so he could, you know, it could never be rebuilt. So, like, will Franklin be A-OK now? Or... I mean, maybe that's common knowledge to everyone but me at this point, but, uh... Also, maybe I'm just thinking way too hard about something that uh, will never be mentioned again. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. But uh, but uh, that's that's Damien's letter. Thank you so much for writing in. I'm glad everything's okay. I'm glad uh, when I didn't get a message from you in a few days, I was hoping that everything was good. But uh, knowing that you were just busy, hey, you know, that, that happens. That happens. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. It really, really means a lot. And uh, we're going to wrap up with... Just a message I received from our friend Evan Bevins uh, regarding a uh, service called Hoopla. Now, uh, Hoopla, we'll we'll talk about this in a bit, and this is not a paid plug. Uh, He says, Fallen Angels finally came up on Hoopla. But from your description, I don't know how exciting that is. So the only one I'm missing now is X-Force, and he says he only read the first issue of that one so far. And again, this is not a paid-for plug, though as always, I am for sale. But if you were to go to hoopla digitalcom which is a digital library resource in North America, and sign up for an account, and if I'm getting this right, I did go through the the FAQs and the um, and the about page here. So long as your local library is partnered with the Hoopla service, you can read some of the stuff we're talking about on this show and a whole lot more for free. Um, as Evan said, Fallen Angels Volume One is there for free, and that you know that's. That's about as much as I'd pay for it, or I would recommend you pay for it. So the first six, or all six issues, hopefully, fingers crossed, in trade format digitally, it's there. And if your library, your local library, is partnered with Hoopla Digital, you don't even need to leave your house. You could check it out, and uh, and you could follow along. And I did a search for just X Men, and there are a ton of X Men books from now and yesterday. Like a ridiculous amount. You could not possibly read all of it. There is so much there. So, if you're listening and are interested in checking this service out, I highly recommend you do. I'm going to sign up for an account a little bit later on, even though I can't I can't read digital. But I do want to be able to be more helpful in helping people find these books. So, you know, I know a lot of people are using Marvel Unlimited, which, you know, you are reading these things for free, but if you don't feel like coughing up the money or if maybe you only do Marvel Unlimited a couple months out of the year and you just want to catch up with this stuff as it is if your library is hooked up to Hoopla you can do it so uh can I, I don't see it almost seems too good to be true but uh i suppose after i sign up i'll find out maybe every third page is like an ad for an mmorpg or something so you have to you have to get past those to get to the rest of the story no no i'm i'm, I'm sure that's not it i probably shouldn't <laughs> I shouldn't disparage the service before using it. But uh, it's there. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, report in some more information. If anyone out there who's following along, if you're doing so by Hoopla, let me know. And uh, let me know uh, just how user-friendly it is. Uh, it's It sounds very similar to a library. You borrow a digital book, and uh, in times like this, that's a good thing to have. So, thank you, Evan, for bringing that to my attention. And I am very, very much looking forward to your thoughts on Fallen Angels. <laughs> I really want to know. Uh, and also uh, X Force number one, which I feel like the series kind of peaked there because it had that uh, that killer um, cliffhanger. But uh, definitely check in, let us know. But I think that's where we'll leave it today. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so quite easily on Twitter at Ace Comics and Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can go to the show's site at chrissoninfiniteearths.com and is on Infinite Um 90s X-Men on Facebook is the group where we really don't talk a whole lot about 90s X-Men. But uh, it's there, and it's, it's eccentric. And I didn't mean for that to sound like eccentric, but it is uh, centered on the X-Men. Uh, There's also the audio archives where you can check out those Comics Talk episodes if you so desire, and that is chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Maybe I'll link to to one or two of those in the show notes today to make it a little bit easier. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it. I want to thank everyone so, so much for listening and hanging out and sharing your time and your thoughts. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 55 of X-Lapsed, where we're, uh... Well, we're fixing my goof up here. We're doing two issues of X-Force in a row. This is the second of those two. And it is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 7. This had an April 2020 cover date. The story is called Domino Has Fallen, and it uh, features Domino being almost toppled over by literal dominoes. And, uh... Tell you what, when I saw this cover, I thought it was a cool cover, but I uh, didn't really want to know what happened inside, because Domino just isn't isn't one of my favorites, uh, and we'll talk more about that as we go along here. Uh, this one's written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Oscar Bazaldois. I might have said that right the first time by accident. Uh, colors, Guru EFX. Letters, of uh, VCs Joe Magna Designs Tom Muller, Head of X, Hickman, Edits, Robinson White, Cebulski, cover price $3.99, went on sale February 12th, 2020. Now we open and we're off the coast of Italy, and we see a mutant ally out on the water jetting by on his speedboat. Suddenly, he's shot dead right between the eyes. Now the narration suggests that this is a literally impossible shot. From here we go to Toronto, Ontario, where a man who has written several pro-mutant articles is hit by another magic bullet. Now this thing started off across the street, went through a window, went through a guy delivering him a pizza, went through the pizza, then finally went through the heart of its target. Next stop, Tokyo, Japan. Now a very convenient series of of events unfolds here involving a child losing a balloon and chasing it into the street. Causing a car carrying a Kirkoan Advocate to stop in the perfect spot Right above a manhole Now, from the down below, a shot is fired And this shot goes right through the target's head Now, if you're familiar with the X-Men, and I'm assuming you are And you hadn't been following along with this first handful of Dawn of X issues You'd probably assume that all of these lucky breaks belonged to Domino And, well, you'd be right and wrong And we're about to find out all about that Next up, we go to Krakoa, and Sage is reporting all of this to Domino, who reveals that ever since she was abducted and skinned by Zeno, she'd lost her luck. She uh, says every time she rolls the dice, it used to come up sevens, now they come up snake eyes. Now, that all begs the question, if she no longer has her luck, where in the hell did it go? Yeah, let's do a roll call here. It's a short one, but uh, it's one that'll still lead up an entire page anyway. Our, uh, our cast is Sage, Domino, and Colossus. And then we get two pages of credits. From here, an info page. It's all from Beast's logbook. And Beast basically spends the page talking about how Forge is acting like a frat boy chucklehead. So uh, I guess his out-of-character representational is intentional, then? If I'm reading this right, anyway. I mean, if that's the case, good to know. Because, wow, Forge kind of sucks uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in this characterization. Oh, and also, they're working on some spyware uh, In the form of a sound-absorbing singing stone Which sounds like something out of Ocarina of Time So that they can keep up to date on what's going on At all levels of government and all of the superheroes You know, they're going to try to get this in the Avengers uh, computer Or tower or mountain or wherever the hell they're living nowadays And also, you know, into the White House Into everywhere that the power lies, right? From here we jump back to comics Domino is still thinking back to her time in a Xeno canister, and it's been keeping her up nights. And so, she just goes out for a midnight run. Now, she reaches the beach and runs into Colossus, who is there painting, because that's all Colossus ever seems to do. Now, we haven't seen Colossus. We haven't seen much of Colossus here. Uh, he did make a odd cameo in the Fantastic Four miniseries, but... Uh, In the Dawn of X-Books proper, I think we've only seen him the one time where he was in, uh, like, the hull of of one of Kitty's boats. Now, together, Domino and Colossus have a fairly touching scene, and they compare notes about their recent trauma. Now, Colossus had something pretty heavy go down in Russia, where he saved a bunch of refugees, but also saw a lot of horrifying things. Now, we haven't gotten a full explanation of this, but it was touched on back in the first issue of this X-Force series. Again, he came back on Kitty's boat And uh, those were those refugees that the healer couldn't heal Because they were hurting everywhere Now they have a pretty telling conversation here um, How they were both told that what they had to go through Was worth it for Krakoa How it's said uh, almost dismissively As in, all their troubles already happened So they're not even worth discussing anymore And I mean, at the end of the day It was all for the, quote, greater good this is interesting. Uh, I hadn't really considered like the collectivist undertones, but uh, or I mean, maybe they're even overtones <laughs> to Krakoa. And uh, while yeah, while it's clear they're prioritizing the needs of the group over that of the individual, I hadn't really stopped to think about it. And uh, in my not thinking about it, I didn't think any of the characters thought about it either. So this is pretty good stuff, and we'll talk more about this later on. But I, I really, I really dig this. Next stop, another info page. It's more from the Beast. He says that he'd found a piece of paper left for him with scorched edges, and it had a single word on it, written, I believe, in Cyrillic. I think that might be the language. Or the alphabet. I don't even know. I tried using several online translators for this, but I'm not even sure I'm I'm using the right alphabet. Uh, The closest I could come to actually forming a word is loyalty, though I'm probably wrong. Back to comics, and it's time for another lucky assassination. Now, this time it's a priest of the Order of X. This is an organization that worships mutants. Now, Domino asked Sage to try to use mathematics to figure out the next pro-mutant target. And they deduce that the next hit might be one Professor Elise Irene Owsley. She is a staunch defender of mutant rights, and she's scheduled to deliver a speech at the Sierra Institute in Tahoe. Sure enough, she is the next target. Thankfully, however, Domino is there to tackle her out of the literal line of fire. Then we get a chase scene here. So we have our assassin shooting into this uh, institute from outside. He's there on a you know a snowy hill. It is Tahoe after all, a snowy mountain, I guess. And our assassin is on a pair of skis, and you know, seeing that the jig is up, starts swooshing on down the mountain. Domino leaps out of the institute, swipes some fellas snowboard, and proceeds to follow. And we get four pages of high-octane downhill chase, with Domino finally managed to get, managing to get a lucky shot in when she blasts the barrel off the assassin's gun. Now, the chase ends at the foot of the mountain, where we find ourselves at a casino. Inside are, you know, casino things. You know, um, slot machines, gamblers, chips, cods, dice, you know, casino things. Uh, it probably smells like, you know, 20-year-old cigarettes and old nacho cheese sauce. Ugh. We focus on an an older lady who'd been wrestling with the slots all day, just waiting for the damn thing to pay off. Then, someone places their hand over hers while she pushes that big, shiny red button on the machine. Bada bing, bada boom, it comes up all sevens, and the old biddy wins the jackpot. Now, we close out by seeing that this uh, good luck charm, this good Samaritan, is Domino, only not. Now, you know how Domino is white-skinned with a black circle around her eye? Well, this domino is black-skinned with a white circle around her eyes, so like an inverted domino doppelganger, I suppose. And uh, that is where we leave it. Next episode, we will finally wrap up the Dawn of X Wave One number sixes with X Men number six. I'm not even sure I can remember them all. <laughs> I said to write out rankings here. I might actually have to to check out my notes again to uh, to see what I thought of some of these because it's been it's been a little while since I read some of these, so. Stay tuned for that, but let's talk about this issue, and, uh, you know, it's... Wow, I, I can't believe we've got two issues of X-Force on a row that I really, really liked. That's, uh, quite a quite a shock. I wasn't expecting to like either of them, and, uh, I really enjoyed them both. Um, I'm really not used to enjoying stories that feature Domino as a point-of-view character, and I'm sure I've said this before, uh... The thing with Domino is, I feel like she only has, like, the same story. One story that's told over and over again. She infiltrates someplace, she gets captured, she escapes, and she ultimately wins. That's literally every Domino story. Now here, while we're on a similar trajectory, there's something about this story that feels a little bit fresher. Though, given the cliffhanger, I have a sneaking suspicion that the freshness might be sorta kinda short-lived. But... We won't talk about that today Let's let's enjoy what we have today And we'll worry about that another day I, I do like the idea that in taking Domino's skin The uh, Xeno geeks were also somehow able to take her powers Not so much for the Domino-specific powers or anything But for what this could potentially mean moving forward Xeno, like many of the Dawn of X villains at this point Are pretty generic and weak Though, if they're able to grow like these dark mirror versions of the good guys That could up the, stakes a, up the stakes a little bit Or at least make the books a little bit more interesting Than, you know, just a monthly X-Men versus Interchangeable Mercenaries Or Dudes in Suits sort of series I mean, it's something, right? <laughs> it, so that's all well and good, right? But for me, where this issue really shined Was in the very brief scene between Domino and Colossus Now sure, we still don't have all the information about the atrocities that uh, Pyotr saw How do you say that? Is it Pyotr? Pyotr? Peter (laughs) Colossus, I'll just call his ass Colossus All the atrocities Colossus saw and lived through in Russia But that's not really the point here, that we don't know that just yet The point is, and uh, I think this is the first time we're actually seeing a little bit of this It's sort of kind of descent from some prominent Krakoans Domino and Colossus saying, sort of dismissively and under their breath, for Krakoa, was very telling, at least for me. It's like they're actually afraid to dissent, right? Uh, but there's this this hesitation, from which I infer that they might not be completely on board. The way I look at it, they might they might feel less valued as individuals, and more just as, like, spokes in the wheel. You know, just a little cog in the machine... To move Krakoa forward Especially considering What they've both gone through It's not hard to see why they might feel this way And I mean this is something That we could probably talk about Till we're blue in the face, right Is this another byproduct Of the resurrection protocol I mean another thing that reframes What we consider as stakes In the post hoxpox world here It begs questions like Are our mutants less valued Do their lives matter so little simply because they are now sort of products of Krakoa? Products as in they can be replaced quickly and easily, as we've seen. Does that make it so that their suffering matters less? Does it mean that they're valued less? Does this mean that Xavier no longer really prioritizes preservation of their individual lives? You know, uh, these to me are very fascinating questions And are ideas that I'm really hoping that we get to explore moving forward I think the next issue of X-Force actually features Colossus and Domino on the cover So perhaps we'll get a little bit better of a grasp on their thoughts and feelings there Just like with the last issue here This, is, this isn't this is quite a one and done But it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it feels like it's existing on its own And that's a good thing I really enjoyed the art here. I thought it was I thought it was solid art. It was lighter. It was brighter. Um, again, it wasn't like the uh, you know the submarine with the lights turned out. So I liked that. And uh, overall, very very strong. Very strong in that it um, it made me think. You know, uh, it made me actually consider just what it means to be. A Krakoan in this uh, post-Hoxpox Resurrection Protocol sort of setting, and uh, I'm hoping we see more of this. I'm hoping that this gets explored because that's been one of my problems here. Like I've talked about it when Quentin Quire got his head cut off, and they were just like joking about it. It's like, ah, well, he'll be back to bother us soon enough. It's like, but a dude died, you know? And we saw in the Fantastic Four miniseries where Wolverine gutted that that mutant uh, in the Doombot armor. It's like you still killed a man, you know, and it was just shrugged off. So I'm hoping that that's on purpose, you know. I'm hoping that we are that we are downplaying what it means to die, so it can mean more when they discuss what it actually means to die. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I hope it does. But uh, all that to say, loved this. Thought they, uh, thought that this scene, this thought provoking scene. Was worth the price of admission all on its own, and I'm really looking forward to more just like it. But uh, that's where we'll leave X Force number seven. Let's do some mailbag before we go. We're gonna start with Damien discussing Marauders number seven. He says, "I still love Marauders. It was so clever to delay the others knowing about Kitty, and of course, Kitty was a. Uh, we saw her drown in Marauders number six. Of course, it could ta- it would take a while to miss her." And they're all used to her going AWOL for a while. And yeah, absolutely, this was perfectly done, and it made a ton of sense. Uh, I love that Marauders is actually using the parameters that have been set, as it pertains to Kitty, to, like, the best possible use of them here. I mean, we know Kitty can't fast travel, and she's usually away for long stretches at a time. We also know that she wasn't even on her own ship, which makes it so the rest of her team couldn't just fast travel to her. So it's very well done, playing the ball where it lies And using that to the advantage here Because it totally makes sense that they wouldn't know They wouldn't worry just yet I mean, Bishop was a little worried that she didn't beat him there But, I mean, she does slip away And she is beholden to, you know, the chops of the water, right? I mean, she could have gotten stuck in a storm She could have gotten stuck She could have gone off, you know, off trail, off trajectory You just don't know, especially when you're dealing with a place in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle, right? I mean, that's kind of its gimmick. Uh, Back to Damien. I love the characterization of of Callisto. The bit where she ripped the sleeves off reminded me of a scene from Savage She-Hulk number 21 from way back in 1981, where She-Hulk does the very same thing. I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but I can't help seeing the parallel. And I could definitely see that. I I don't remember that scene off the top of my head, but it definitely feels like something that She-Hulk would do. And uh, might have done a few times since then as well. So yeah, I could I could definitely see that. And uh, you know, with Marauders, you just can't say whether or not it's a uh, callback or not because they're really good at that. <laughs> they're really good at the callbacks. So that might have been something there too uh, uh, to evoke that sort of uh, a comparison. Uh, Damien continues. I'm so glad to hear you you getting a positive representation of your home. The extra information about your area that you gave gives texture to the idea of the Morlocks moving in. Surely they could do stories about lots of golfing pensioners having to cope with Morlocks. And, uh, this was, of course, uh, Rio Verde, Arizona, where the, uh, Morlocks are, uh, chillin'. You know, while Callista does her thing. And I talked about, uh, having to do a lot of jobs out there for the, uh, for the golfing pensioners. Yes, uh... And, uh, it's a very rare thing to see, like, the Phoenix area represented correctly, because it's usually barren desert, you know? I think, uh, they did an okay-ish job in the Will Payton Starman series back in the 80s for DC. Beside the fact that, like, Will's house looked like it was backed up against, like, a densely wooded and lush forest. Which, no, we don't have those. <laughs> in, not in the valley, anyway. I mean, there are parts of Arizona that are very, very densely wooded. But, uh... Not really in a, in the downtown Phoenix area, so they tried. Uh, Damien wraps up with uh, anyway. I'm still loving your work, and uh, thank you, thank you so much. I'm still I'm still loving hearing from you, so thank you for for everything. Uh, next up, we have Al Sedano, who's talking about Marauders number one. He says, "Sorry, it's been a, it's been several days, but it's been a busy week. Anyway, let's get on to Marauders number one." First of all, I do like that it looks like they are keeping up giving us a cast for each issue. I hope that keeps up past the issue ones. And yeah, we, uh, we do continue to see the roll calls, which to me is, I don't know, kind of a good and bad thing. I mean, of course, it's good to know who we're reading about. Um, but to me, and this might be weird, but it gives each team roster like maybe a little bit too much in the way of fluidity you know like uh when you looked at or well, when you when you eventually get to uh, like new mutants here it's like like boom boom will be on in the roster for some but not in others and it's like well is she part of the team or is she not part of the team it's i don't know it feels like they change from month to month where i'd rather i mean i i come out of the of the early 90s fandom here where it's like you had your set team and that was your set team and it's uh and anything else was just like bonus stuff so i don't know it feels a little fluid for me, but I don't know, that might just be me thinking too hard. I also have a problem with the fact that they take up an entire page. I mean, today's issue, we had three people in it, and it got a whole page. Uh, we've had issues of of other Dawn of X books, and like the X-Men Fantastic Four ones that had like a dozen or more people on it. And I could see that taking up a page, but three... We could've we could've popped this into the double page spread of credits. Because of course we had to get two pages of credits immediately following it. Al continues, uh, okay, why did Kitty have to steal a boat to get there? I mean did Curtin Aurora just ditch her in Central Park and wish her luck? No one made arrangements for her? However, I did laugh at Logan's shopping list, and yeah, that was You know, I didn't even think about that when I was reading it. It's kind of a jerk move. It's like, well, we're going to take the shortcut. You get there when you get there, and uh, you're responsible for your own transport. So uh, hope to see you soon. That is kind of funny. Uh, Al continues, it was nice to see Bishop back as a good guy and doing an investigation. Uh, He's made to be the mutant cop. And uh, that actually reminds me of some series that I haven't thought of in forever uh, a couple of series that, like, focused on Bishop being a, a police officer, um, District X, and, uh, I believe that turned into Mutopia X post-Decimation, uh, where, uh, you know, the, the no more mutants garbage. And I remember those series being a pretty pleasant surprise. Um, I, I remember them getting, comp- I think I remember them getting compared to Gotham Central, um, at least in, uh... If not in story, in tone, I guess. But I remember those were pretty fun, um, and I, I also agree that this is a real good portrayal for Bishop. I remember um, during during the New X Men, the Morrison run, they called him and Sage in to do uh, to do like to do an investigation after Emma Frost was shot, and I thought that was a fun bit of synergy, and really uh, enjoyed them, you know. Playing back into Bishop's past And uh, into what his, you know, specialties are So that's really cool uh, Al continues, uh, the sinister secrets I'm assuming that the Hellfire alumnus That was not invited was Donald Pierce And yes, we, uh, I believe we know that now um, After is uh, number six We do finally see Donald Pierce And it's a, it's not a good reunion So <laughs> I'll leave it at that uh, Al wraps up with Overall I really enjoyed this one And I'm looking forward to issue two And yeah this is, I, I mean I, I can't say enough good things About uh, Marauders uh, It was Definitely a dark horse book for me uh, A book that I mentioned here Several times before I wasn't even going to pick it up uh, I was just going to pick up the, the main X-Men book And then when I saw Like Excalibur was something And it's like X-Force was something new. It's like these are Like the legacy books You know, the books that I've been collecting for most of my life. So it's like, ah, there can't be an Excalibur book out there, and I can't, and I'm not buying it, right? But then, you know, you see something like Marauders on there, and you figure, eh, I'll take a chance, you know, I'll take a shot. And turned out to be, you know, the surprise hit of this Dawn of X run. Uh, Definitely. A wonderful surprise But uh, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, Al I, I do have your thoughts on, I believe, Excalibur number one Sitting in the mailbox here And we'll uh, we'll discuss that one uh, next episode But uh, thank you We're going to wrap up with uh, one from uh, our friend Green Lantern HG And he's talking about episode 50 And he says, Chris, my friend I caught up to episode 50 of X-Labs I've been having trouble listening because of work They're piling up on me I just want to thank you for keeping up with this I've missed a lot from X-Men. Some, I'm glad. Others, well, not so much. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, GL, uh, for uh, writing in and uh, and for keeping up. It really means a lot, because, you know, I've talked about this a time or two before. I feel like I'm being very greedy by, uh, by forcing myself onto your devices as often as I have been of late. And, uh... I know that time I respect everybody's time I respect everybody's decision making And their priorities and stuff like that So it's like I know that things pile up I am a perfect example of letting things pile up Hence, I mean, this very show (laughs) Comes out of me letting things pile up so uh, I guess sometimes good things happen that way but uh no I, I definitely understand and appreciate you uh, sticking around. It really means a lot to me um that you are uh that you're following along and that you're you're enjoying and uh and that you you know you listened to episode 50 because episode 50 was a special one. So thank you so much for uh for sharing and writing in and uh and for being part of this this you know weird little journey that we're on uh navigating our way through the the current x books. So if anybody else would like to uh, write in and talk to me about current year X-Books or anything, anything in general, uh, you could do so very easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or email me at weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and all sorts of stuff over at earth.com. If you're just interested in X-Lapsed, there is Earth.com where you can listen to these shows in the... You know, the order they're supposed to be listened to so it's, uh, it's easy way to find them um, The Podbean feed is uh, Well, it's very deep now So it's kind of hard to find things, I, I would assume I, I don't really try to find things on my own feed Because I've heard it all already So, uh, maybe someone can let me know How easy it is to navigate I, I remember trying to navigate it a while ago But, uh, yeah, that's a story for another day <laughs> There were some There were some wrinkles in there That, uh, that I had to fix, but, uh We'll talk about that another time. Um, the Facebook group is 90s X-Men, uh, and also the audio archives is chrisandreggie.potbean.com. So I just want to thank everyone once again for hanging out and sharing your time. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode fifty-nine of X Lapsed, where we are officially in wave two of the Dawn of X books. Here, yeah, we are kicking off a whole new volume, of the seventh, seventh volume of Wolverine here today, and it's a biggie. It's a biggie. Um, Apologies for any potential raspiness on my end here. Uh, The voice is still not up to 100%, but I'm going to give it the old college try here. I might stop a few times for a swig of water, and I'll do my best to remember to edit them out. But I can't promise I'll get all of them. But uh, we've got a big book. We've got an expensive book. I believe this is the most expensive book to this point from the uh, Dawn of X line. It's an $8 book, which is... uh, uh, it's pretty spendy. it's pretty spendy for a book here and uh, I figure when you when you put uh, such a such an inflated price tag on something that it damn sure better be special. So uh, maybe Deadpool will get married in it three times but uh let's get right into it here because we got a lot to go through. This is of course, Wolverine Volume 7 number one. This had an April 2020 cover date, and there are two complete stories here, and we'll do the credits as we work our way through. The first story is called The Flower Cartel, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Adam Kubert, or Kubert. I never know how to say that name. Colors, Frank Martin. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. The head of X is still Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Cebulski. Cover price, $7.99, and went on sale February 19th of 2020, which... Doesn't feel like such a long time ago, but uh, it's almost a year ago at this point. Uh, It's pretty wild. All right, now, we open somewhere in Alaska. Wolverine is all torn up and uh, looking kind of Terminator-y, you know, like his skin is missing and he's got the metal underneath. He he looks like a Terminator. Now, something big just went down, and uh, he's going to need a few moments for his healing factor to, you know, kick in and do a little bit of knitting. Now, our camera pans out to reveal that his fellow X-Forcers, Domino, Jean Grey, and Quentin Quire, are all dead laying in the snow. And they're dead by Wolverine's hands. But how? Oh, great. A brand new volume of Wolverine, and we're kicking off with a, with a repeat. I, I swear we've seen this exact same scenario kick off a Wolverine story like a half dozen times before, right? This This isn't just me, is it? Wolverine, surrounded by dead bodies, wondering how he did it. I feel like we've seen this before. Many times. Anyway, Wolverine hobbles over to Jean's corpse and is able, is able to deduce from her defensive wounds that she had tried fighting him off, but couldn't. Our man then notices a set of footprints in the snow and decides to give it a goo. Before we go any further, however, let's do a roll call. We got Wolverine, Marvel Girl, Call Me Kate, Sage, Domino, Kid Omega, Gateway, and Beast. Then a double-page spread of creds, of course. Uh, the second story will not have a roll call. So just keep that in the back of your mind for <laughs> whatever good it'll do you. Now from here, we jump back in time five days and we're back on Krakoa. Wolverine is playing hide-and-go-seek with some Krakoan kids and Gene shows up to reveal his location to the Tots. And, uh, you know, she's not doing this just to be a, a jerk. She's doing this because Call Me Kate has just shown up and would like to have a chat with Logan. So, uh, uh Kitty ain't dead yet? Uh, despite the fact that this book hit the shelves like a month after the issue where she dies happens. Unless her death happened within the last five in-story days, which, hey, give me my no prize. I think that might. Uh, I think I, I solved it. So, Wolverine wraps up his game, and he heads over to the Marauder, where he tries to act all coy about what he'd just been up to. Kitty's like, eh, cut it out. I know you were playing hide-and-seek. Wolverine insists that, no, no, it was nothing like that, He was just teaching the kids how to survive in the wilderness. Anyway, they head inside the Marauder for some drinks and a chat. And Kitty shows off a brand new way for her to drink whiskey. Because, uh, you see, she hates the taste, but still wants to feel drunk. So she, like, puts her hand over it and just phases it into her bloodstream. (sighs) She talks about how happy she is that Logan himself appears to be happy. And Logan says, hey, you're not wrong. But now it's time they get down to business. Now, you see... Kitty has noticed some of their drug shipments have gone missing. Sometimes it's just a few, sometimes it's a larger portion, and a few times it's been entire, an entire shipment, an entire haul, I should say, because these are the basic flowers being stolen, the Krakoan flowers, not the finished pharmaceuticals. And she'd like to get to the bottom of it, and who better than Wolverine? Next, we shift scenes to Baltimore, Maryland, and here we meet a CIA agent named Jeff Bannister, A fellow whose appearance gives us the impression that he's one of them, you know, rogue agents who follows his own, his own rules, his own compass and whatnot. He's got really shaggy hair, you know, a full beard, and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, He's been called to a crime scene, and it's a drug lab that would, that would appear to have been a target of the cartels. Only he's able to deduce that all the dead folk in the joint done did the deed to themselves. On the table, there's a metal platter full of powdery goop. Now, Jeff takes a sniff and notes that it doesn't smell like the usual stuff they find in drug raids. Rather than it smelling like burning garbage, this stuff smells like, quote, gardens and grandmas, and he compares it to pollen. Now, pollen, of course, is from plants, but pollen is also a drug, which takes us to this next info page, which is all about pollen. Now, we learn that it's a relatively new street drug coming from a flower cartel, which is the name of the story. Jeff Bannister has been given lead on this case, and he's putting together a covert operation. Some folks, uh, you know, above him are on board, others not so much. Uh, Some suspicions have arisen regarding the black market of the floral drugs and their potential link back to the Hellfire Trading Company. They figure, hey, the mutants are handling everything above board. Who's to say they're not handling the black market as well, which is uh, pretty perceptive. From here, we head back to Krakoa, and we jump ahead one day. So we're four days before our opening scene. Sage reports the last three stolen shipments might be headed around And they attempt to triangulate locations that both haven't signed the Kirkoan Treaty And that are experiencing the season of winter When, due to the colder climate, the flowers yield more pollen Now, their first stop is Russia Wolverine assembles X-Force, which includes an unscarred domino So, (laughs) Lord only knows when this story is actually taking place Uh, They also call in Gateway to help with the warping, because all the Russian gates are heavily guarded. And we've seen this happen before, and it's odd. You know, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, Russians were always the bad guys. They were a very safe target. And here we are, same as it ever was, several decades later, and they're back to being a relatively safe target. What are you going to do? We jump back to Baltimore, where Bannister is having a sit-down with another agent. Now, it's worth noting the right side of Jeff's head is horribly scarred and pretty gross. Anywho, this other agent talks a bit about the effects of pollen. It's said to give the user an exalted feeling. Basically, it makes the brain feel twice as smart and the body twice as strong. Jeff jokes that he could use a bump of that himself. Uh, The other agent is named Meredith Millie, and she doesn't see the humor in that, uh, but hands over some documents for Jeff to sign. Once she's out of the way, Jeff's approached by a doctor who informs him that she is awake. And so we find out that we're in a hospital where Jeff's sickly daughter is held up. Or laid up, actually. Uh, Now, it turns out his child, his daughter here, is on a wait list for some Krokoan antibody drugs. Tell you what, this is a concept I hadn't yet thought about. I just assumed that Krakoan magic meds were, like, wildly plentiful, right? Anyway, he tells his daughter that there are some bad guys stealing those petals, and that's making her daddy very angry. From here, an info page. It's the Order of X, a mutant-worshipping cult, and I swear we've already had this info page a time or two before. Um, One new wrinkle here, however, is that they note that the devotees have Xs sliced over their mouths. So, like, like, where their mouth is, that's where the X would cross. So it looks... It looks pretty disgusting, actually, but, uh, I don't know, I guess it makes a point. Okay, three days ago from the opening scene, we're in Russia. X-Force arrives right in the middle of an Order of X ritual. Now, they're viewed as gifts from the gods, and the devotees are just all about it. To celebrate the arrival, the devotees decide it's time for a communion, and so they suck down some pollen. Now, Quentin Quire, he is overjoyed to be worshipped as such, and, uh, decides to do a little bit of ill-advised crowd-surfing. That is, before the devotees make it clear that they'd like to, uh, well, drink some of his mutant blood. And so, a fight breaks out. Wolverine advises to maim, not kill, which is, you know, is a nice enough idea, I suppose. Suddenly, though, the devotees all begin to die, Wolverine's ticked off. He assumes that Quentin Quire just disregarded his uh, his, you know, his order and was killing people. But Jean informs him that this ain't Quentin's doing. These goofballs are actually dying from the pollen. So from here we jump ahead 2 whole days and we're in Moscow. Wolverine is visiting some shady-looking back room of a bar or something like that where he meets with some shady-looking people. Now, Logan drops his duffel on the table, and inside it is an order of ex-devotee, dead. Now, the lead shady guy doesn't want to answer any questions, and he just tells Wolverine, hey, you know, this conversation's over, get the hell out of here. Wolverine notes that there is a psionic dampener surrounding this building, but, you know, he's still onto their scheme. You know, he can't, uh, these guys can't stop him from figuring things out. Now he suggests that the Order of X bought their pollen from them, only that it was just some really bad dope with a touch of pollen cut into it. He then does this whole that that thing where he like pops the outer claws around a dude's neck while threatening to pop the third, which would like go right through his throat. I mean I'm sure there's a better way to explain that, but it's the gimmick we've seen like a hundred times before at this point. I mean it's 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 always pretty cool, so I can't really fault them for it, but uh we've seen it before. He asks where they get the flowers, right? And finally, the shady fella decides to talk. He says they get them from her. And her is a pale girl, or the pale girl. This pale girl is trying to corner the market on stolen petals, and uh, tried getting these morons working under her, where she would take, you know, 80% of the profits. And so these goons decided to try and plant their own flowers, you know, so they can keep a little bit more of the profit. This... Obviously ticked the pale girl off. So much, in fact, that she made our leading shady guy cook his own eyeball with his lighter while it was still in the socket. Hence why they have installed a psionic dampener. That's, it's there to protect themselves from her, the pale girl. Where would one even begin looking for a psionic dampener? I mean, do, do they have them at the Home Depot? I don't think they do. From here, we jump to the morning of the day where Logan Massacre's X-Force. Wolverine and Beast are at the point in Krakoa, and Beast, it's worth noting, looks a lot more like classic Beast here than the Beast we've been seeing in X-Force. And while I I do like this look a whole lot better, it's a definite sign that there is a lack of communication between these creators. I mean, did Adam Cubitt even bother to flip through an issue of X-Force before drawing this? Because, uh, it could be two different characters. Anyway, they talk about this new pending drug war and how it's ultimately their fault. Whether it is or isn't, I mean, I guess uh, that's for other people to argue. Now, at the same time this little meeting is going on, we join Jeff Bannister at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Now, I've never seen the Big Lebowski, but I'm imagining old Jeff talking exactly like that guy in it. Uh, Anyway, he's got a sneaking suspicion that the mutants might be behind the black market sale of these drugs as well, and would like to arrange an operation in order to confirm his suspicions. From here, we finally get back to the now, which is where we're going to wrap things up. Wolverine is healing up, and he's still trudging across the snow. He finally happens across a pale girl. He pops his claws and proclaims that she made him do it. She made him kill his teammates. He then drops to his knees and finds himself surrounded by Jeff Bannister and all his men. To be continued, but we're not done yet, because, uh... We have a whole second story, which thankfully only has a single-page spread of creds to kick it off. So let's get right into it. Story the second is called Catacombs, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Victor Bogdanovic. Colors Matthew Wilson, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller. I'm assuming the edits are the same. Now Wolverine has stood on a Krakoan cliffside, commenting that things are so weird and different these days. This is a safe place, and yet people are getting killed, calling back to Professor X being assassinated back in X-Force No. 1. Enemies are now allies. People who wanted to end the world are now trying to save it. Someone who once tried to kill you is now your neighbor. Basically, if you've read even a single Dawn of X book, or have listened to a single episode of this program, this is all stuff you already know. All of this to say that, yes, the mutant landscape is very different. Now, you got to trust your fellow homo superior, but, but that begs the question, can you? Enter Omega Red. Literally, Omega Red stumbles through a crawling portal, and he, he's looking like a stretch of rough road at this point. Wolverine decides that it's with all Arcady that he's going to have to draw the line on who he can trust. And so he lunges at him with his claws popped. Unfortunately for him, Magneto is there to halt his little metal bones. Now, remember, Krakoa is for all mutants, not just the ones that Wolverine doesn't mind being there. Magneto asks Logan to have a better look at Omega Red and notice that while he's covered in blood, that much of it is his own. He then hurls Wolverine's body through the Krakoan gateway to do a little reconnaissance. And so our man winds up in Paris. Now, he finds a car that stinks to high heaven and it's dripping with a viscous fluid. And, well, uh, it's not oil. Upon opening the trunk, Wolverine is greeted by a whole lot of pale corpses and body parts, and one still-living specimen who springs out and immediately dies. But first, he does tell Wolverine that he's exactly like him. So, there's that. After some purple internal monologue about Wolverine hating Omega Red because he reminds him of his own dark passenger, we hop back to Krakoa. To the uh, prison grotto of Krakoa, to be specific, which I didn't even know they had. We learned that whatever attacked Omega Red was strong enough to cut through his carbonadium armor, but that under Cecilia Rea's treatment, he should make a full recovery. Now, Wolverine is not pleased, suggesting that there's absolutely no good in Arcady. He's a monster. To which Magneto suggests for like the dozenth time since we started Dawn of X that the same could be said about the two of them. I'm sure Ben Percy himself has written this exact same conversation twice, at least, at this point. Anyway... Wolverine's worried about the children and what Omega Med Omega Med Omega Red might do once free. Magneto doesn't really think all that much. After all, that's what the resurrection protocols are for. Now Wolverine suggests that day, "Hey, you know, resurrection's all well and good, but it doesn't exactly erase trauma, which uh That's exactly what I've been arguing for this entire run at this point. And it's weird that Percy is writing this, considering how many times we've seen death being brushed off in X-Force. Yes, the trauma is real. The trauma, the experience, the witnessing, that's all real stuff, but uh, I guess we only remember that when it's convenient. Anyway, Magneto suggests that, should the time come, it'll be left to Wolverine to neutralize his foe. He then says uh, that they don't know the whole story yet, right? As it pertains to the car full of corpses They don't know how they got there, what they got there, what they did, who they were attacked by, yada 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 And so Wolverine marches into the holding area of the prison grotto to ask some questions Now Wolverine approaches Omega Red and basically calls him out as being the worst of the worst Omega Red smiles and asks what Logan would say if that weren't true Let's say there were someone worse than he He then suggests that the car full of corpses wasn't his doing. Now, Wolverine is incredulous and pretty confused. Omega Red suggests that Wolverine head back to Paris and visit a place called the King's Oboulé. Oboulé? It's a French word that that I don't know. Uh, But I did look it up, and I guess it's French for King's Dungeon, which uh, sounds like a pretty kinky place. And so, that is Wolverine's next stop. As he walks down the Parisian street, he bumps into Eris from Final Fantasy VII. She tries selling him some dog roses, but he ain't too keen on them. They stop They stop and chat for a bit, with uh, Logan even inviting the young lady for a drink at the said she's, she's not interested in heading inside. She says, hey, let's go somewhere else. Unfortunately, Logan has business to attend to at the Obolet, so uh, they'll just take a rain, t- rain check on their impromptu date here. So Wolverine heads inside and down a flight of stairs to the main area of this weird little club And it's full of weird and creepy looking folks Wolverine orders an absinthe and turns out the thing was drugged So uh feels like our hero might be a little bit off his game because this is a little too easy So Wolverine's KO'd by the drink and he wakes up having been bound and hung upside down from the ceiling He's surrounded by vampires Ugh. Oh, sorry about that uh, Vampires, yeah mm. <clears throat> Okay, let me, let me try to shake that off And we'll, we'll continue along Okay, now one of these uh, Vampires uh, literally taps Wolverine's carotid artery With like an actual keg tap So they can uh, share in his blood To which Wolverine pops his claws And decapitates the nearest vampire He then starts swinging about like a tether ball, Slicing and dicing all the creeps within reach Then the flower girl from earlier pops in And she's brought with her a UV cannon So she flips the switch, hits the lights And turns the remaining vampires into dust Suddenly makes sense to Wolverine Why she'd bumped into him with the dog roses I was a little less clear on this Because I could give a rat's ass about vampires or vampiric lore So this reference was lost on me But in hindsight it was pretty clever There you go Back on Krakoa, Wolverine is checking in with Omega Red, wondering why he'd send him on like a suicide mission like that. Well, uh, Omega Red's a bad guy and he hates your guts, for starters. Huh? Uh, Red suggests that he just wanted Logan to see the truth. He says that this is going on in the Paris catacombs and that these vampires were all prisoners. As this story is being told, we get a scene of a Paris morgue where a dead guy on a slab turns into a vampire and begins feasting on the mortician. Then a bunch more vampires descend on the scene and continue to feast on that mortician. Omega Red then shares the story of Saint Julian, which makes me think that Ben Percy thought this was a cool little ditty and was looking for the for like any reason to drop this bit into any story he wrote. Red only tells the story up to the just before the twist ending and says if Wolverine would like to know that twist ending, he'd better hustle to Paris, or to Wikipedia, I guess. Now, to be precise, he is going to the Church of Saint-Julien-la-Peu. peu la I'm sorry, French people. I don't know how to speak your, your beautiful language. Uh, here, at the uh, Church of Saint-Julien-la-Peu, uh, he runs into the flower girl again. And we finally get a name for her, and it's Louise. She claims to be part of an ancient holy order known as the Night Guard, who are devoted to fighting the vampire nation. Oof. Okay. She guides Wolverine to an armory, which is full of vampire hunting gear and weapons. Wolverine pops his claws to signal that, hey, I've already got all the artillery I'm going to need. Now, before we know it, our tandem are walking through the catacombs. One of them steps on a trigger, which opens a trap door, and uh, they fall a great distance. Wolverine catches Luis before they make impact on the bed of sharp bones below. And our man winds up very much impaled Many, many, many holes in his body But, you know, he's Wolverine, so he'll be fine Unfortunately, they're absolutely surrounded by vampires What's more, Louise's UV cannon took the brunt of the fall and no longer works Good thing for her, though, she's got some holy water grenades Okay By now, Wolverine's able to pull himself up to his feet And he starts slicing and dicing Unfortunately, the vampires have already captured Louise And are threatening to kill her right then and there that is, unless Wolverine decides to give them what they're after And what they're after is a taste A taste of his blood And so Wolverine lets the vampires descend and suck his blood While this is going on, he does manage to kill one And uh, it's one that he assumed to be their leader Then, true to their word, they leave Louise alone I guess vampires love him or hate him, they're, they're honest Um, Now, Wolverine comments that his healing factor kills off the vampiric enzyme so he won't turn into one. Even though I swear we've seen him turn into a vampire like a half-dozen times before, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Louise comments that it's strange that the vampires would just leave like that, and Wolverine posits that they were all just freaked out because he killed their leader. To which we learn that the goofball he killed wasn't, in fact, their leader. Their leader is... Duh, Dracula. And uh, I guess he's the Charles Xavier to vampires, right? So, like, Charles Xavier is to mutants, as Dracula is to the vampire nation. Now, we wrap up some time later, after Omega Red has recovered. And, you know, since his story checked out, he's free to come and go as he pleases. Now, he exits through a portal where he has a rendezvous with Dracula. He's gonna hand him a carbonadium doohickey or something. Now, Dracula, it's worth noting, is able to walk around in daylight... Perhaps a result of having some of Wolverine's healy blood flowing through his veins? Maybe? I don't know. I wonder, I mean, when a vampire sucks blood, does it go into their veins? Or does it just go in their stomach? I don't know. Anyway, we learn here that Omega Red and Dracula are in cahoots. Drac tells Red to keep up the ruse. He says, join with the mutants, but continue to obey him. And that's where we leave it. We do have an info page. It's all about blood. But, uh, after reading, like, the previous 400 pages of this issue, I'm a little too fatigued to give it the attention it might deserve. But, uh, that is Wolverine, Volume 7, Number 1. Next episode, we will be taking a look at New Mutants, Number 8. But, uh, let's talk about this issue here. And, uh, wow, it was a long one. I suppose if you're gonna, if you're gonna charge eight American dollars for a single issue of a comic book, uh... Well, damn sure it better be a meaty one, right? It should be a little bit thicker. Um, what we get here are two full issue-length stories, which is fine. So often these days we'll get books touted as being double-sized and as such being double-priced, and then we wind up with like a 28-page story instead of a 20-page story, you know, which isn't, you know, a double-sized issue. So in that regard, this is a refreshing change of pace, and for once a relatively fairly... Number one issue from Marvel You know, and Marvel, they're folks who've never met a pointless price hike They didn't like, so we'll give them a thumbs up for that Now as for the stories I definitely liked one better than the other But honestly, neither one of them really did anything for me I will say the art on both these stories was, uh, was really nice um, You know, not bad at all Cubit uh, is a uh, classic X-artist uh, Very, very much X-Men comfort food for me And I've liked Bogdanovic uh, ever since I saw him working on New Superman over at DC. He was the only reason I was buying New Superman. I I really enjoyed his work. So let's start with the first story, which uh, was the one I felt was stronger of the two, probably because it didn't have vampires in it. I like the idea that there are wait lists for the Krakoan magic meds. Um, Not so much for the simple fact that, you know, there are wait lists, but it was something I hadn't considered being, you know, a challenge though i suppose it might be a commentary on modern healthcare more than anything i mean way we look at it here the mutants are forking over the meds to the governments of these uh, nations who signed the treaty right but at that point the mutants influence ends you know they they they've made the transaction done deal from that point on the government needs to allocate the drugs where they're needed and uh I mean now more than ever, we know governments are really good at dragging their feet and getting bogged down in red tape and uh and maybe I don't know maybe being uh less about the needs of the people so uh maybe it's commentary on that, maybe I'm reading too much into it, maybe it's just a, a sign of the times. I don't know. I like this jeff guy, this Jeff Bannister guy he seems like an okay dude uh his motivation, his motive- motivations motivations are sound as well. Uh, He's got a sick daughter who's on a wait list for the drugs, and here he is investigating a black market for those same drugs. So it stands to reason that he'd be motivated to do so, since he actually has a dog in this fight. Uh, Something they mentioned during the story, that I didn't mention during the synopsis because I wasn't sure it was important, uh, they mentioned something about him not wanting to receive his documents digitally. He doesn't want to sign things on the computer, which... I guess I'm very much the same way, but uh, I wonder what the point of this was, if it's going to come back around in a later story or later chapter. It feels kind of odd to just drop it there and make such a point of it and never bring it up again. So maybe it'll come up, maybe it won't. Maybe it has something to do with the scar on his head, I have no idea. Now, the Order of the X stuff felt a little samey. It's just more X-Men, or X-Forcers in this case, versus a bunch of dudes. Uh, the wrinkle about them getting some bad pollen is kind of interesting, and it facilitated, you know, the story of the pale girl being told. Uh, also, the uh, you know the markings on their face, you know, the etching, the X over their mouths. Uh, that's it, very uh, that's it, very devoted, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, that it's just something, I guess. It's something that differentiates them from the other weirdos around there. So there's that. Uh, now, speaking of the uh, the Pale Girl and uh, what the Pale Girl may or may not have done here, I hate to harp on it, but the opening of the story, where Wolverine somehow murders his entire team, I know I mentioned it already during the synopsis, but really, how many times do we need to open a Wolverine story with this gimmick? Right? its I swear we've seen it so many times before. And, I mean, it's not like it's a bad story, or a bad kickoff point, but... The payoff is, like, damn near guaranteed to be highly unsatisfying It it, it just feels like a real played-out way to kick off this fresh new volume It's like, wow, didn't we already... Is this, is this a repeat? Are we in repeats already? I don't know uh, Some lack of consistency here uh, And with regards to characters and their appearances um, Again, stuff I mentioned during the synopsis But it's worth, or it bears repeating, perhaps uh, Kitty is here when she should be dead uh, Beast looks like he's got his full mane back, like he used to back in the while ago. Um, Domino's face is unscarred. I mean, again, I I hate to harp, but uh, I mean, we've got like we've got like near a half dozen editors working on this family of books, right? Are we to believe that these pages haven't gone across any of their tables? Come on. <laughs> okay, enough about the first story. The second story, which. Had vampires in it, so I felt like it was a lot weaker Though, that's really not the fault of the story itself I mean, whether or not I care about vampires Should not come into, into anyone's mind when they're writing a story uh, I remember back, oh, what was it, like 2009, 2010 or so They launched X-Men Volume 3, right? And uh, we were all psyched to have like our first X-Men number 1 in 20 or so years Could you imagine that? 20 years between X-Men number 1s. We don't go 20 months anymore. We were 20 years. So they bring this guy, Victor Gishler, in, and he tells a horrible vampire story. Uh, Was Twilight already big by then? Yeah, probably. Anyway, I thought that story sucked. And yeah, I thought this kind of sucked, too. I thought it was cool to see Omega Red again, though I could have sworn he was already on Krakoa from around House or Powers of X number 5. Uh, They did show a panel with, like, a bunch of... Or, like, maybe three or four Omega Red-looking folks in it. Maybe those were all different people. Maybe none of them were actually him. I don't know. But it was cool to see him, simply because it felt more like we were reading an X-Men comic. Um, The vampires, though? I couldn't care less. Uh, I did dig or appreciate some parts of the story here, um, besides the great art, because Bogdanovic... Really, really brought it here It was a wonderful, wonderful-looking story um, But uh, other parts that don't have anything to do with the art uh, Magneto and Wolverine arguing about whether or not Arcady ought to remain on Krakoa I kind of dug that Though Magneto using the old chestnut of, you know Hey, we're pretty bad guys ourselves Is, is wildly played out at this point um, But I do appreciate the fact that Wolverine talked about the trauma that comes with death And uh, to this point, it's never been mentioned, right? That's something I've really, really mentioned <laughs> That it hasn't been mentioned I've I've really taken the creative teams to task for that And, I mean, hell Wolverine brushed off Quentin Quire's decapitation death Just a couple issues ago uh, In a book written by the same dude who wrote this exchange I don't know uh, the, the lack of emotion regarding deaths Was really one of the things that stuck out to me As being uh, rather off-putting And, uh I mean, we all know that death is easily reversed in comics in general, more so now in the X books than ever. But like Wolverine and I have said, you can't erase the trauma. You know, let's just hope that they keep that in mind moving forward, and maybe just keep it in mind. You know, just keep it in mind as they go forward here that uh, there are longer-lasting effects than you know, bingo, mango, pop out of a neck. Uh, the vampire hunter Louise, eh. <laughs> It felt Wolveriney, right, to have a female sidekick, right? Uh, but I mean, she could have been anybody. It could have been anybody here. Uh, again, that's not the fault of the story or anything. It just, I guess, it just didn't move my needle in one direction or the other. Uh, Wolverine not being affected after being bit by the vampires was a bit odd, uh, considering I'm, oh, I'm like 95% sure we've seen him turn into one before, or at least once before. Probably in that awful Gishla run, as a matter of fact Because I know there was a cover that depicted Wolverine as having vampire fangs in that run uh, As stated during the synopsis I wonder if Dracula's ability to walk in daylight is due to Wolverine's blood Which I guess could be sort of kind of interesting Though again, if Wolverine's already been bitten by vampires Wouldn't this have come to light before now? No, no pun intended um, Omega Red playing both sides, it works I'm not all that jazzed about it, but it's fine. I'm not entirely sure what to expect moving on with this series, since we do have two, you know, we've got two starter stories here. Um, Maybe we'll alternate issues for each story, or maybe we'll do one whole story and then address the second one. I don't know. Uh, It does seem like an odd way to launch a series, but, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Overall... um, I mean, this wasn't bad. It just felt like a couple of random issues of Wolverine. Nothing about them screamed a number one, and neither one felt special. Uh, you could have told me that this was like mostly from an issue from the turn of the century that Frank Thierry sleptwalked through writing, and I'd probably believe it. Like I said, it's not bad or anything, it just doesn't feel special. And uh, maybe it's... Maybe it's the curmudgeon in me. Maybe it's the purist in me. But uh, I feel like if you're going to launch uh, like an all-new number one and charge eight bucks for the privilege of owning it, it needs to feel special. And, uh, well, this didn't. It was just stories, inoffensive stories, but uh, it didn't feel special. So that, my friends, is Wolverine number one. Both stories. But before we cut out of here, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got a couple letters to go through. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing Excalibur number seven. He says, It's weird to hear you read out my comments about going back to work on my first day at home on lockdown, or first day back at home on lockdown. All non essential retail has been closed for the next four weeks. Hopefully, I won't have to wait seven months to get back to work this time. And man, I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, that sucks. Um, it feels like every time the restrictions are lifted a bit, like the pendulum swings too far. Right? We wind up overdoing it. We like forget. We forget that there's still a virus out there. Um, here in my area, uh, the governor announced that you know the uh, the dining in restriction was lifted. Right? So we can now go to restaurants again. And uh, you'd think there might be a little bit of trepidation there, right? It's like it's like we go from not leaving our houses to, hey, you guys want to be part of a giant petri dish, crammed into a into a tiny building while you while you eat and breathe and talk and cough and and sneeze. You know, they lifted the restrictions here, and no sooner did they do so that there than there were lines, literal lines, around the buildings of these restaurants with folks trying to get in. And I mean, of course, the next few weeks we would see a surge in cases. I mean, just because the restrictions are relaxed, that doesn't mean we're home free. I, I really wish we were smart enough to realize that without government intervention, you know? As much as I don't want another, like, like stay-at-home order passed from the government, I really wish we'd use a little bit more common sense. It's, it's rough. It's real rough. Um, it's a... Uh, yeah, I won't go any further into it. It's just, it sucks. It's, it's a thing, and I'm really, really sorry to hear that uh, that you're back out of work for, for the next little while. Uh, Damien continues, I loved this issue of Excalibur. It really focused on characterization, which I strongly believe is Teenie Howard's biggest strength as a writer. I think it's the first time that the whole team has appeared together with every character given some time. You can clearly see what motivates them all. and Definitely, definitely agree with you. I think I mentioned this in the review of Excalibur number seven, but I think this was the best issue yet for the series. Uh, purely for the reasons that you listed, it felt like a fun team book for the first time since its inception. Without you know all this stodgy magic stuff getting in the way. Well, not not much stodgy magic. There was still some of that, but I mean, it was it was just a part of the story instead of being the entire story. So here, I mean, we had just a, we just had a good time catching up with our cast and. Uh, it feels like the first actual breath we've been able to take with these folks since you know since House of X number 1 since this entire thing started these characters have just been hustle bustle and basically background noise to the to the overarching plot so it was really cool i mean i hate to compare it to like the the downtime issues from Scott Lobdell's run but uh, because there was plenty of action here but comparative, comparatively speaking this was very much a quiet issue. It wasn't, It wasn't. you know, soldiers, char- knights charging at one another, another world. There were no dragons flying around. This was just nice. It was a nice break. Uh, Damien continues. You mentioned Pete Wisdom being everywhere, but actually he's written within a very small area. We've been shown that he lives very close to Buckingham Palace, and that is very close to London Zoo. He really hasn't gone beyond a half-mile radius of his home. <laughs> I told you all, I'm not a worldly fella. <laughs> you, they could have been on opposite sides of the planet, for, or opposite sides of the country, I should say. I, I don't know. <laughs> Plus, I'm used to things being kind of spread apart out here. You know, like when some folks think about touring California, for example. Like I think some folks think that they could, uh, they could see the Hollywood sign, go to the Golden Gate Bridge, and then stop at stop for lunch at Disneyland, and like. Do it like all within like two hours when there's actually you know hundreds of miles between all of these things and uh, a very very long drive uh, you know six to eight hours if you're if you're lucky and don't hit traffic so I'm used to things being spread out quite a bit more than uh, than they are in, in London I suppose uh, Damien continues I do find it hard to imagine that London Zoo would be willing to sell some of their animals to a hunter. We have some pretty stringent laws here governing the sale of animals. Also, hunting with dogs has been banned since 2004. And uh, I guess that's why that zookeeper was being a little, little bit shifty. Not terribly forthcoming with what they did with those, those poor defenseless werewolves. Uh, Damien continues, It's really weird seeing Betsy say that she'd never been hunting. I remember reading stories set in the 80s Where Betsy was in her mid to late 20s A woman of that age and upbringing Would definitely have been hunting It was an aristocratic pursuit It probably adds up to a woman of of her age in 2020 Could never have been involved in a legal hunt But it doesn't add up for me Curse you, sliding timeline And yes, that's certainly a case Where the sliding timeline can affect Our characters' upbringings here Uh, Definitely not something I would have thought of But uh, now it certainly stands out really makes you wonder I mean, best case scenario The comic books are still a thing that exists In 20 years Uh, But it makes you wonder how much society will change In those next 20 years And uh, I almost shudder at the thought Of how our characters will be updated To reflect all that Uh, Damien continues, or actually Damien uh, Wraps up here with Was Cullen Bloodstone always villainous? I don't recall I don't understand why they had to create a demonic horse. As far as I'm concerned, all horses are evil. They just can't help it. And I don't know that he was always so much, like, on-the-face villain, right? I recall him being portrayed as kind of a pompous jerk during Avengers Arena, but uh, I don't remember him being, you know, just a flat-out bad guy. And I'm not sure how... I'm trying to think if we've seen him in the interim, and uh, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I don't know where he might have popped up, Maybe in one of the 7,000 Avengers comics out there. Um, but uh, I, I haven't seen them since Avengers Academy. I mean, Avengers Arena. And uh, whatever spun out of Avengers Arena. The thing that was not as good. I don't remember what it was called, but uh, yes. And uh, Avengers Arena is actually one of those stories I would just love to revisit at some point. Uh, but you know, time being what it is, and my collection being the mess that it is, it'd probably take me like a, a month that I don't have, just to dig it out of the long box jungle. But uh, definitely a fun series that I would recommend to most people. It's a uh, it's a lot of fun. But thank you so much for uh, for writing in, Damien. And again, uh, best to you in the uh, in the in the job uh, as it pertains to the job here. I it just really really stinks that uh, that you're back, you know, uh, off duty. So sorry to hear that, and and best to you. Uh, next we have a letter from Al. And he's reading X Force number one. He says, "I'm up to X Force number one now. Only one more to go for volume one of Dawn of X. So let's see where this one goes." First, that opening scene was good, very James Bondish, perfect for Domino. And of course, this is where Domino was sitting at that table with uh, Zeno, and uh, I think they were all like cutting their hands to to test if there's any uh, any mutant blood on in anybody there. And I agree, that's a that's a perfect scene for Domino. Unfortunately, it feels like we've seen Domino in this exact same scene like a dozen times before. So, uh, a little bit of a fatigue there. It's one of the reasons why anytime I see Domino on a cover one of these things, I kinda, I kind of shudder a bit because it's. I, I really think she's got one story, and they just keep telling it over and over again. Uh, Al continues. I want to know what's up with that weird animal. Is Beast going to get a pet? And I actually had to stop and think here. I, I'm like, what is he talking about? But uh, I forgot that Beast. Was attacked by a beast. <laughs> and uh, basically, to facilitate Wolverine coming down and having a very forced conversation about how the mutants were becoming soft on Krakoa. And uh, I'm afraid I got some bad news, because I don't think that animal is ever coming back. Though, I have been wrong before. Al continues I don't remember seeing Colossus in Marauders. Will we see their side of this and finding Colossus in Marauders number two? Or will this be one of those things that happens between issues? And uh, it's the second one, I think um, yeah, Colossus doesn't show up in Marauders And his being on Kitty's boat Won't be followed up there um, So it was kind of just this one, one-off one scene And it'll take seven issues to actually begin to pay off I, We just read X, X-Force number 7, I believe or number Yeah, I think it was number 7 And uh, that's where we start to get some insight into Into everything that Colossus saw of course, Colossus will make a cameo fighting the Fantastic Four, but Lord only knows where that story was supposed to happen. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things that happened between issues. And uh, it's going to take a little while for it to uh, to come back around. I'm hopeful that the next issue of X-Force, you know, maybe gives us a little bit more about that. Uh, Al continues, Your comment about the attackers looking like characters from Wetworks made me laugh. I forgot about that book. Personally, I thought they looked like Reavers, the original ones from the Hellfire Club. Cole, Macon, and Reese. Why do I remember their names? And yes, you're definitely more right than I was. <laughs> they will be uh, revealed as, uh, at the very least, a, a Reavers adjacent. Um, I, I don't know that they're full-blown Reavers, but they are definitely adjacent. Um, Al continues. Now about that Xavier Black Tom scene. I didn't take it as Xavier threatening Tom's job. I took it as him trying to explain that everyone needs to learn how to trust. He has to trust the council just as they have to trust him. And yeah, that that's that's possible and probable. I just didn't appreciate how dismissive Xavier was of Black Tom. Um, if you know, if Xavier puts Tom into a position, it suggests that he trusts him, and to dismiss his concerns the way he did, really just didn't sit right with me. Um And I don't think we've seen Charles apologize for this either Considering it turned out that Tom was 100% right in this case So, I don't know, it still just didn't sit right with me I didn't like uh, the dismissiveness of the discussion Uh, Al continues I did not see that ending coming How how do the resurrection protocols work if Xavier's gone? And of course, X-Force number one ended with Professor X getting his brains blown out by the Wetworks guys And, you know, when I saw that, I thought You know, wow! We got so many possibilities here, right? My mind was racing with all the interesting ways that this could go. So many questions came to mind. You know, how would resurrections work? Could there even still be resurrections? Would cerebro still work? What would what does Mora know that uh, that Charles is dead? We get none of that. We we get absolutely none of that. And by now, you already know that Xavier will be back (laughs) in a couple issues. He'll just pop out of an egg. All's well that ends well And uh, all we'll do is just have the specter of Hey, Xavier was one shot Hanging over our heads for the next several issues here Because, hell, they mentioned it in this very issue of Wolverine And uh, I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of it Al wraps up with If Boomer is dead, they better get on those protocols quickly And you're safe, because Boomer's okay Uh, She'll live to get wildly drunk another day I think she was just a familiar face that they could cram into this scene, so where it's not all just like nameless, facelesses. And uh, you'll be seeing boom, boom, quick enough. You'll be seeing her in uh, New Mutants number three, so she'll be she'll be sloppy drunk, but she will be there. So uh, look forward to that. And by now, you've you've already heard it. But thank you so much for uh, for keeping up. And uh, yeah, you've got one issue left for the Dawn of X number ones, and. Uh, It's a doozy. It's a doozy. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Fallen Angels. But uh, we have one more letter, and it's from our friend Jeremiah, who uh, we haven't heard from in a while. This is all about X-Men number one. He says, I finally read X-Men number one and listened to your show. Hopefully now I'll try to read and listen more. I'm so glad you brought up the room chart where Wolverine has a room in the summer house. That really threw me. I didn't read any of the online chatter about the open relationship. I'm looking forward to catching up with your show and the comics. And thank you, Jeremiah. I know how, I know how hard it is to keep up. I, I mean, especially with all the the content coming out from this channel and, of course, many others. So I definitely appreciate you popping back to uh, to check in and uh, and catch up. Uh, Now I didn't keep up with any of the online chatter either I try my best not to Even when I am up to date with what I'm reading um, Especially now that I'm not So this was all brand new information to me as well And it was a little bit jarring To see that Wolverine was living with the Summers And uh, I guess really didn't make all that much sense Uh, Because I always saw Gene as like this bone of contention Between Cyclops and Wolverine, right? So to see here that they're all just kind of on board. They're all okay with the concept of this open relationship. It just doesn't sit right with me. Um, I don't see Scott agreeing to such a thing. Hell, I, I, don't, I don't see Jean wanting any part of this either. I'm not saying that she would choose one or the other. I don't know who she would choose, but I'd assume that she'd want to actually choose one and stick with that one, one or the other, not both. This just feels... I mean, it's weird, it feels weird to say out of character, because, I mean, what are characters nowadays? We we don't even know. So, uh, as far as my headcanon's concerned, this is wildly out of character for all three of them. I don't think that, Wolf, even Wolverine, he wouldn't, I don't think he'd want to share uh, a woman with, with someone. I, it feels weird. And, I mean, this might just go back to the possibility that there is a measure of manipulation at play here. I mean, actually just the other day We talked about that hot take theory from uh, Evan About, uh, hey, maybe these mutants that we're reading about Aren't the real ones Maybe they're just, uh, they're just pawns, you know uh, The real ones are in stasis And these are just chess pieces Being played with by Professor X, you know But that might be the, the, This bizarre love triangle Might be the most jarring um, Bit of just out-of-character portrayal That we've seen to this point Um, There's been a lot of weirdness But this, to me, might be the the weirdest of the weird And uh, I'm not sure where it's going There have been rumors online Or uh, I I suppose they're probably not even rumors anymore But some stuff I did see Some stuff that people sent me Was that there might be a romance between Cyclops and Wolverine Involved in this this love triangle So I suppose we'll just have to wait and see Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that um, that also feels out of character But, uh, I guess we'll just wait and see And we'll see how it, uh, how it works out Or, or doesn't work out, as the, as the case might be But thanks again for checking in, Jeremiah Please don't, uh, don't be a stranger I, I always love hearing from you, so thank you And I think that is where we'll put a pin in it for today We are officially in Wave 2 of the Dawn of X line here Wolverine number 1 is checked off I believe our next number 1 will be Cable and it's not too long from now, it's just a handful of episodes away And then we'll have Hellions And uh, sometime a little bit later on We'll kick off X-Factor But uh, that'll do it for today So if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me uh, You could do so on Twitter At Ace Comics or via the Gmail box At weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com You can find show notes And blog posts and all sorts of stuff At on Infinite Earths.com There's also on Infinite Earths.com. Uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook, and the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, I think this episode is ending just in time for my voice to completely, completely give up on me. So uh, <laughs> that's fortuitous, I suppose. Uh, just one more giant thank you for everyone, to everyone for uh, hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really, really means a lot. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.